This is going to be a long episode. I'm guessing that this is probably going to be two and a half hours. Hello and welcome to JudgeCast. This is episode 248. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Prilliman, and I am joined this evening, afternoon, morning drive to work by Jacob Malicic. Hello, everyone. Hope you're all staying safe and staying healthy. And to that note, something great that'll encourage people to stay safe and healthy is staying at home. And at the time of this recording in three days, Ikoria is going to be released on MTG Arena. We could do a pre-release episode for these cards, but, you know, since it's not going to be in paper, what do you say we talk about um, investigations? Uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's call up that special guest we talked about and audible into <laughs> that. I'm 100% on board with that, uh, especially considering, like, unlike previous sets, and obviously I've not been part of a JudgeCast release notes episode before, but, uh, I, I was talking with a friend about this, actually, and, uh, I'm surprised, and, and he was surprised, at the level of complexity in this set, given that it is Icor set. Uh, <laughs> Icor set. Got it. So, today I actually spent a little bit of brain cycles in trying to figure out how to properly pronounce Ikoria. So I think it's, it's... when they first released the set name, they said it was pronounced Ikoria, which is why I've been pronouncing it that way. But um, I can't find the reference for that. Yeah. So Tabak had a tweet today that the first syllable is I-H. That should be I then. So it should be Ikoria. So like Iker. Yep. Ia. So, haha, joke's on you. We're not doing investigations. We're actually doing these release notes. Um, This is going to be a, one of our longer episodes, just telling by the number of cards. Uh, The notes are uh, at least 70% longer than other show notes that we've done for other release episodes. So that kind of should give you some sort of indication as to what's going on. At least 20 pages we have dedicated towards Mutate. We are not going to cover the Commander release notes, too, that they kind of snuck into the end of that document. Yeah, I mean, we might cover that at a later date and and go through what's going on with those Commander cards, but there is so much material, and like... I'm trying to be positive about this. Like, I think this is a really good opportunity for judges to demonstrate the value that we bring by being the people who understand these things and can answer these questions for the, for the various things that come up for players. And that's what these are all about, is to arm you with the tools to really be able to, to process the set quickly and, and remember, oh yeah, that's how this thing works. Oh, that's enough stalling before we get into this. Let's go ahead and just rip the Band-Aid <laughs> off. So we're going to be talking about the, the first mechanic, or one of the signature mechanics of Ikoria, is this Mutate. Uh, mutate's one of, those, one of those mechanics that is really complicated. Like, it's a little bit of bestow, it's a little bit of meld, it's a little bit of... What was that uh, mechanic from the Unset? From the onset, oh, uh, yeah. host augment to augment, with host hosts. and augment. Yeah. So it's it's basically they took they took three complicated mechanics and then just put them in a blender yep. and made a nice mechanicy smoothie. And we're gonna probably say the word mutate so many times that it's gonna start to lose meaning. Interestingly, mutate actually kind of functions like you're putting everything into a blender uh, when, you, when yeah. you think about it. You're sort it of it actually never, does. Yeah. 
at a high level, so I'm going to read you one of the cards. It's called uh, Vulpakeet. It's a bird fox for Everything three Everything in this world is either a Pokemon or a creature from Avatar The Last Airbender. It's, it's, it's kind of nuts. <laughs> it's a bird fox for three and a white. It's a 2-3 that says flying. Whenever this creature mutates, put a plus one, plus one counter on it. You go, oh, okay, that's cute whenever it mutates. Well, so it also has a mutate cost for two and a white. That's its mutate cost. I'm going to explain this in non-precise terms before we start explaining it in precise terms. The reminder text is, if you cast this spell for its mutate cost, which is two and a white, put it over or under target non-human creature you own. They mutate into the creature on top, plus all of the creatures on bottom. And they've got this neat little frame where they, they kind of have the ability box separated from the mutate cost. In a sense, you can cast full Pakeet for its mutate cost, and you have another creature. Let's say you have a bear cub, because obviously everyone loves to have a bear cub. I can put Vulpakeet under the bear cub, okay? And Vulpakeet in that particular case kind of works like an enchantment. You know, whenever this creature, it's it gives my bear cub flying, and bear cub is just the bear cub, and then it gains all the additional text from Vulpakeet if I put Vulpakeet on the bottom. If mm-hmm. I put it on the top... I have a Vulpakeet, and it gains all of the abilities in the text box of Bear Cub, which now, as I say it, is not a particularly exciting example because Bear Cub has no text other than some adorable flavor text. Sure. It does let you cast your Vulpakeet uh, at whole mana earlier, basically, though, with haste. Right. Yes. Right? So there are advantages to, to doing this, but yes, uh, yeah. the the whole thing is that you have a, a top, of a mutate stack, and I'll try to find a better word, a heap. We'll call it a heap. If at the top of your mutate heap, uh, it's, it's a programming joke, uh, <laughs> and then everything underneath your mutate, the top of your mutate heap is just conferring abilities, and the top is what's dictating what the thing is and its base characteristics, with an exception we'll get to later. Yeah. So, okay, things things of things of note, let's, let's talk about some of the the easy stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, right, yeah, the yeah. easy stuff. Okay, yeah, the easy stuff. So, mutate is an alternative cost, and if you've listened to Judge Cast for any length of time, you're pretty familiar that an alternative cost is a cost that you pay instead of the mana co- uh, the mana cost of the card um, that's, that's printed up in the top corner. You can only choose to cast a spell with one alternative cost. So if you have multiple things that let you pay an alternative cost, you gotta pick one. And sometimes there's a mechanic tied to that particular alternative cost, and that's how you get that mechanic. So what I mean is, if I have something that lets me pay Wooburg for any creature spell I cast, I can't pay Wooburg and say, well, I'm going to mutate it because that's an alternate cost. Like a Jota, I think it was, from Dominaria, had the pay Wooburg cast any spell. Right. Right. Um, Also effects that you cast a spell for free. Right, saying you can cast it without paying its mana cost. Uh, that is also an alternate cost. So if it lets you cast it without paying its mana cost, you're doing that, which means you can't cast it as a mutate because that's also an alternative cost. And this is going to introduce a new term. So when you cast a spell for its mutating mutate cost, it becomes a, quote, mutating creature spell, which is a new term. And it requires a target just like auras do. 
okay? And that target is a non-human creature you own, because we don't want humans to mutate. Also, it has to target a creature you own, which means the creature started in your deck at the beginning of the game, which is a little weird, because if I gain control of another person's creature, of another player's creature, I can't mutate it. But if they gain control of one of mine, I can mutate it. And I think we're going to get into why that makes sense or why that had to be that way a little bit later. Right. Uh, um, but it's an important distinction. Also, on that note, if you steal somebody's mutated creature, that you own restriction is all just targeting. It's not talking about... it. Like, the mutations don't fall off because now you control the creature and don't own it or whatever. That That's not how it works. It's yep. just for targeting it with the mutate... The mutating creature spell. Yep. So a mutating creature spell is a creature spell. Okay. So if you have a if you have something that says counter target creature spell, it's you're still going to be able to target that creature spell. However, it's not going to enter the battlefield as a creature. Okay. So it's a creature spell. It's a mutating creature spell. It's a creature spell on the stack. It won't enter the battlefield as a creature. Instead, it just kind of again, it just kind of globs on the the target either you stick it above or below yeah it's sort of similar to bestow except for that choice and the the ramifications and the fact that it's a creature spell so similar to bestow is in heavy air quotes but another way it's similar to bestow is if you cast it as a mutate right and the the target for you your mutating creature spell goes away say the the person bounces it or gives it shroud or whatever so it can't so that it can't be a legal target anymore. Uh, it's it's not going to go away. The, the mutating creature spell doesn't just remove itself from the stack and go to the graveyard. Uh, instead, just like with Bestow, it just enters the battlefield as a creature now, as if it were cast as a creature spell. And definitely that's that's an important, an important fact, that you don't actually lose the creature. So that's an important you take away from oh. that particular... <laughs> so, something else... <laughs> We said that it doesn't it doesn't enter the battlefield as a creature. Okay, if it's if it's merging with the other card, which means abilities that trigger whenever a creature enters the battlefield will not trigger. Okay? I have a creature card, I'm putting it on the battlefield, but because I'm putting it on kind of over or under another creature, it's still that same creature. That that's the creature that's on the battlefield. It just mutated. So it didn't Come on, uh, nothing nothing came new onto the battlefield. So, no creature came onto the battlefield, Brian, but uh, say I'm mutating that bear cub with my Vulpakeet. Uh, does that trigger Vulpakeets whenever this creature mutates ability? Yes. Yes. It's very cool. Yeah. So, so and, and, that's, and that is regardless of whether or not bear cub or Vulpakeet was on the top or the bottom. Right, so if you okay. remember how triggered abilities function, uh, unless it leaves the battlefield-style trigger, uh, it is going to look immediately after the triggering event. So immediately after the mutation has occurred, that creature's on the battlefield with that triggered ability, regardless of whether Vulpakeet is on top or in one of the bottom portions of the heap. Now, we've only talked about mutating a creature onto another onto a non-mutated creature. But you can get like super wacky and be like, well, I have a mutant and I'm going to mutate my mutant. So I've already got two cards. I've already got a merged creature with the two cards. 
and then I'm playing another mutate targeting that original creature. Now, the way mutate says is I can either put it on the top of the stack or the bottom of the stack. But I've got two cards, and so the question is, is can I can I slide it in the middle there in between those two cards? The answer is no. No, no, you can't. Top or top or bottom. Right. Not that like I can't, I haven't seen anything in the set that would actually care. Um, but what matters here is that then it's useful as a memory aid for the order in which things occurred in case that matters. Uh, that does often matter to judges if you're looking at, for example, doing a backup. You can tell by the order of things. Oh, okay, well, the top thing had to be either the last thing or, you know, um, one of the earliest things because the only way the top thing changes is through a mutate. Previously, when we had meld cards... We actually, they actually had a magic card on the back, like a large magic card. So when you had two creature, two cards that melded together, they flipped over. And it was pretty clear what that card was. I mean, it had a name and it had, it had a power and toughness, but that was melt. This is merge. What's, what are my characteristics of, of my merged creature? So your top card of the merge heap defines the characteristics of your creature. It's going to have that thing's name, its color, creature and type power and toughness whether or not it's a token honestly if i recall correctly uh mm-hmm. so top thing if it's a token it's a token if the token's anywhere else in the heap it's not a token if the thing on top is a card a uh, very important and weird distinction yeah right yeah and then and then it's it's abilities are all of the abilities in all of the text boxes of all of the cards in the pile right <laughs> which like, read them on down the line. Sometimes those abilities aren't going to sound like they do anything. Sometimes they might not do anything. But important is the... Uh, I want to make sure I'm not jumping ahead here, but because we're talking about it, uh, some abilities are going to refer to that card by name for the card it was originally on. It That refers to this thing. That's uh, something... It, judges, as, as you start to learn the rules, learn that sort of shorthand that whenever someone's referring to itself by a specific name... It's this thing, so it's still going to affect it regardless of what the creature's actual name is. The rules are changing. The comprehensive rules are changing to support this. Uh, they've put out little summaries, but basically they're changing around the rules of what defines what copyable characteristics are of a of a card and what aren't. When these cards merge, when they Voltron up, the resulting merged creature, all of those abilities combined are copyable. So mm-hmm. you're clone. So if I've got a merged creature and I clone it, I get a copy of that whole creature. Right. It's not merged, but it's got you know the 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 power and toughness and the the converted mana cost and the creature types of the topmost cards, but it has all of the abilities of all the cards in the stack. Right. So for example, your uh, Volpakeeted Bear Cub. If we mutate the Bear Cub with Volpakeet, um, and then we clone that creature, we will have a Bear Cub. Power and Toughness 2-2 with flying, and whenever this creature mutates, put a plus one, plus one counter on it. Uh, and it'll have the mana cost one and a green. And that's... Uh, it will not, obviously, copy the counter, because they haven't changed how that works, thank goodness. Uh, but uh, it will copy all of that. The entire mutate heap is a copyable characteristic, because mutate is happy, happening now in that first layer. So, And something we... Uh, we skipped over in our order here but it's important to to note that uh, the mutated creature it's the same creature it was before the merge in terms of its 
most of its statuses. Like, if it was tapped before, it's still going to be tapped. If it was attacking because you're mutating with flash, it's still attacking. It's the same creature. Uh, similarly, if it's, you know, if you've controlled that creature uh, prior to the untap of the current turn, of your current turn, and you're mutating onto it, you will be able to attack with that creature. All right. We we mentioned the fact that if the if the topmost object in the stat in the in the pile is a token, then the whole entire permanent is considered a token. Correct. Wild. Um, <laughs> right. So cards that say like token creatures get plus one plus one, the, the, this would still get plus one plus one. Let's see here. Whenever this creature mutates, so there's there's a bunch of triggered abilities that trigger off of whenever this creature mutates. So in quotes, whenever this creature mutates. Those types of triggers trigger when the mutating creature spell becomes part of the merged permanent. Okay? Doesn't trigger if a creature with mutate resolves or et- enters the battlefield as normal. So, for example, our uh, our Vulpakeet, if I just cast it as a plain old bird fox, mm-hmm. then the whenever this creature mutates, put a plus one, plus one counter on it, it didn't mutate. It just entered the battlefield. Right. Uh, mutate triggers care about, did this creature uh, go from having N cards in its mutate heap to N plus one cards in its mutate heap? You could think of it that way, uh, because that's what it cares about. It cares about that state change. And I could have several creatures in my pile that say, whenever this creature mutates, do something. Okay. That ability could be on the top card, the bottom card, all the cards, whatever. But I'm going to get multiple triggers if I have it multiple times. And multiple triggers go on the stack at the same time. What do I get to do? I get to put them in any order I want. Yep. Same thing here. Put them in whatever order I want. That's uh, that's no different from how uh, rules work for any of these other abilities. So, like, if you're looking at an ability that's triggering based on how many times that creature is mutated, right... Uh, you include the most recent mutation. This is the same reason why, when we talked earlier, if you mutate your bear cub with Vulpakeet, you get that trigger right away. Same reason here, because we're looking after the event to determine if anything triggered, and at that point, when that triggers is looking at how many times the creature is mutated, it sees its own mutation. Now, one thing of note, if I have a bear Vulpakeet, okay combined and then i decide to clone my bear vulpakeet cub while i am cloning a mutated creature the clone did not mutate correct okay i would not get the plus one plus one counter even though it is copying a mutated creature it itself did not mutate so we've got these these stat these big piles of cards representing a single creature uh, so what happens when we kill it, or bounce it to hand, or blink it? What happens? We look at the timestamp and see that we're 15 minutes into this, and we're not even two-thirds of the way done. Not surprising. Um, yeah. Okay, so a merged creature or is merged till it leaves the battlefield, okay? You can't split it. It is merged on the battlefield. You cannot just bounce one of the cards. You cannot sacrifice one of the cards in the stack. It's one object. So that one object gets bounced, or that one object gets sacrificed, or that one object dies in combat. Yep. And it's it's it only splits into the multiple objects in the new zone it's going to. Uh, because a merged permanent is just that. It's a permanent. 
right? It doesn't uh, exist in that state anywhere else, uh, which matters because you have a single object leaving the battlefield, but you have multiple objects going to the other location. Okay, so if you've got a, uh, so basically, like if you've got a your Vulpakite on Bear Cub, one creature dies, but two cards are put in the graveyard if if you kill that Vulpakite Bear Cub combination. So, like, I know some of you might be thinking, oh, hey, if the topmost object is a token uh, and I go to bounce it or, or whatever, does that mean the whole mutate pile ceases to exist? And the answer to that question is no. Uh, it, it goes to the, because the, the way that works, it's a state-based action. It goes to the zone, and state-based actions look then to annihilate the token. The cards are legally in a place where they can be. So nice try. If an effect exiles uh, a merged creature and then returns it to the battlefield, so a blink effect, as it were, they're going to return as individual cards. The merge is gone. They don't, like, come together. It's sort of like when the Dark Crystal broke and then you were left with the Mystics and the Skeksis. And the Skeksis rather than their their combined forms, yes. Right, it's exactly yep. like that. Yep, for all those people who are familiar with the Dark Crystal, although the uh, Age of Resistance miniseries on Netflix is mwah, wonderful. It's really good. It's really good, you guys. It's really good. Go watch it. Go watch it if you finished watching Tiger King. Yeah, for sure. Uh, excellent puppet work, but we gotta move on. Uh, so let's see, we've covered... No, 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 uh, I want to talk about Tiger King for the rest of the episode. I'm sure you do, Brian, but come on, <laughs> we, we owe it to the judges listening to talk about, uh, if we're putting it in the library. So you got multiple cards going into the library, well, we already have a rule, thankfully, that covers this. So if, if we're tucking it into the library on the bottom, or we're totally losting the mutated, the merged creature on top, uh, the, the owner of those cards chooses what order they go go in that portion of the library uh this has always been the case uh it's just here's another way that multiple cards can go into the library uh that we didn't have before now i've also got if multiple replacements would uh sorry if multiple replacements effects could be applied to the merge creature leaving the battlefield uh, or put into the new zone it applies to all the moving objects so for example uh kalitas uh, which, uh, if it would go to the graveyard, you exile it instead and get a 2-2 zombie. Mm -hmm. Kalitas would exile both of those cards when the creature died. But how Not many just... zombies do you get? I'd still only get one zombie. You still only get one zombie, which is yeah. wild. But yes, that is how that works. But I got rid of a merged creature. Correct. This is one creature represented by two ca creature cards that Kalitas then went, no, 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 you're not going there anymore. Yeah. Now, now one thing that's not actually in the release notes, but I was thinking of is, you know, things that trigger, because we've talked about leaving the battlefield kind of, leaving the battlefield triggers look to see what the permanent existed like while it was on the battlefield. But there's also triggers that say when this card is put into the graveyard from anywhere. Yes. And those it look at the object as they exist in the graveyard. So that would actually see two <laughs> objects. Correct, because that functions like all other non-leaves the battlefield triggers and looks after the event, at which point we have two or three or however many were in the pile, unique objects that are triggering that card put into the graveyard from anywhere trigger. Uh, and we're almost done with mutate, Brian. Almost. Gotta talk about Commander, everyone's favorite format, Commander. Uh, so if my commander's part of, of a merge pile, is it my commander or not? Uh, it, it is your commander? 
but it can have a different name. It's, it's the, so we we had this with morph. Yep. Okay, so if your commander is face down, it doesn't have any characteristics. It doesn't have any name. It doesn't have any abilities. It doesn't have any converting mana cost. But the game somehow just knows that that thing is your commander. Same thing here with uh with mutate and merged is. If your commander is one part of that pile, the commanderness kind of effervesces around the entire uh, stack of cards. Right. If you think about it, commanderness is like a separate object that's not that's like part of the abilities of the card, but can't be removed. It's like a it's like a status that supersedes all other things. Uh, so it's that is still your commander. It still deals commander damage. Um, and if that pile of cards leaves the battlefield. Uh, the commander card itself, you can choose to have to go to command the command zone. The other parts of the merge go to wherever they were going in the first place. You can't have the other portions of your merged commander also go to the command zone with it, uh, as cool as that would be. Yeah. Now, there's something about 10 minutes ago that we said that if you are a devout rules nerd, as uh, several of our listeners are, we said something that you probably went... Oh, but wait, 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 there's an exception case. And mm -hmm. what that what that exception case was, and we're getting to that now, it was just later in the show notes. Um, so we said that it gets the power and toughness of the top, the, the merge stack. It, you get the power and toughness, the object gets the power and toughness of the topmost object on the stack, and then it gets all the abilities below it uh, of all the other cards in the stack, all the cards in the text box. So if I've got a 3-3 creature, and then let's say I have... It gains an ability that says its power and toughness is equal to the number of creatures on the battlefield. So I have a power and toughness, and then later I have an ability that defines the power and toughness. Well, which one wins? It turns out, and this is somewhat intuitive, I guess, if you process mutate stuff as all base characteristics of the object, the power and toughness characteristic defining ability, that thing that says this thing's power and toughness or toughness or power and toughness, uh, that wins out. Uh, so that one supersedes the printed power and toughness of the top card, regardless of where it is in the merge pile. Something else is another another corner case. If if one of the merge creatures is only temporarily a creature. So if it was like a mutable. Yeah, just your animated land or, or pick your favorite Gideon. Um, yep. Okay. And then you merge with your animated land Gideon. Um, uh, Gideon, you'd have to do some type work because he's always a human. But oh, yes. right, right, right. He is always Sarkin a human. Sarkin works Sarkin. better, I think. There yes. you go. Sarkin. So so your favorite, your, not your favorite Gideon. It's going to stay, it's going to stay, that merge is going to be, you know, that uh, that animated land is going to be uh, merged with that creature until the merge expires. Now, when the when the merge expires, what happens is going to kind of depend on what the top card is. So if I had an animated land and merged with my Vulpakeet and put my Vulpakeet on top, then I would have a 2-3 Vulpakeet. With, or sorry, a 3-4, because it gets, gets the counter for rotating. Right. Yep. And then it has all of the text from the land when it unanimates. So it so has it the could, mana ability? Yeah, it could tap for mana. <laughs> or maybe it could use the ability to, like, reanimate itself and it becomes something kookier. You know, like a 3-2 creature that can't be blocked or something like that. 
But now, because this is a rules podcast, what happens if I put the Vulpakita under the land? Well, uh, once the land stops being a creature again, the topmost object dictates what it is, right? So if it's a if it's a beautiful, because it's pretty simple, uh, it's a land that has flying. Not that that means anything. Uh, and whenever that mutates, it'll get a plus one, plus one counter. Uh, the counter doesn't go away because they don't, right? It's legal to have plus one, plus one counters on things that aren't creatures. That's We'll get to something that does that later as well. Um, but yeah, it's it's a land. If you animate it, obviously the, the flying then will have meaning. And some abilities will matter. The, the meaning of, of those words will actually matter uh, on the card, even if it isn't a creature. Some, for example, yeah. lifelink or death touch. Uh, you manage to temporarily animate a rod of ruin and mutate the death touch ability onto it. Uh, you're cooking cool. with fire. You cook it with fire. All right. So the last unusual situation, which we touched on a little bit above, is if the topmost object is face down, then it's a face down <laughs> creature. Even yep. if the even if the cards under it are so if I have face down creature and I put Volpakeet, I mutate with Volpakeet and put it under the face down creature, well that it doesn't have the mutate ability because it's it's face down. Mm-hmm. Uh but then it will you will be able to uh if there's an effect that allows you to turn it face up, say it's a creature with morph, you will be able to because it's face down, but the face down thing overrides a whole bunch yeah. of stuff. Yep. So whoo. Oh, but hold on. If the oh, morph, more? if the morph is not the topmost object in the stack, if you've got a face down card not the topmost object of your mutate pile, uh, you will not be able to turn that face up. Uh, and that's because in order to activate your morph ability, you have to try to turn your face down object face up, and your object is not face down. I know it's weird, but that's how it works. And when Tweedle Beetles battle with paddles in a puddle, it's called a Tweedle Beetle Puddle Paddle Battle. <laughs> well, thankfully, that's all we have to say about the only very comp. Oh crap, we have to talk about companion too, don't yeah. we? Yeah. All yeah, right. Do. So keeping this ball rolling, uh, yeah. it's my turn for this. Uh, and what, it is. what's fitting thing? Because I like to consider myself a companion to uh, to the people I work with. Uh, I like to be very friendly and very affable. Uh, and so I'm going to introduce this whole companion mechanic, which y'all know Commander. It's like that, but it's not. So. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all ever like wanted mutate to play? is like bestow, yeah. but we spent 15 minutes more talking about it than we did bestow. <laughs> yeah, if, you, if you've ever wanted to play with a an actual commander card, but in standard, have I got the mechanic for you? And it's called companion, only it's not quite commander. So here's the deal. Everything with this keyword companion has a a statement afterwards, a statement of fact uh, so, like, for example, you've got uh, Zerda the Dawn Waker, right? Zerda the Dawn Waker uh, says, Companion, each permanent card in your starting deck has an activated ability. Now, that does not mean that with Zerda as your chosen companion, uh, everything that didn't have an activated ability in your deck suddenly does. The statement of fact is actually the restriction, the deck-building restriction you now have to obey. Uh, so every card with companion has one of these deck building restrictions, and if your if your deck 
is adhering to that restriction. So if each permanent card in your deck has an activated ability, then Zerta in your sideboard can be your chosen companion for that game, right? So that was a lot. So we're going to break this down a little bit at a time, right? Uh, you can play any card with companion in your deck normally, but if you're playing it as your companion, it starts the game in your sideboard, which means it's not part of your 60, so it's st you still have to have a legal starting deck. You can't go, oh, well, my companion's in my sideboard, so I'm going to roll out 59. That That's not how it works. So you have... You have a, and it is part of your sideboard, so it takes up one of your, if it's a regular constructed format, one of your 15 sideboard slots. Uh, so, okay. I've, so I want to I want to just clarify something. So starting, uh, this right here, it's it uses the term uh, starting deck yes. a lot, which is a new term. Yes. Starting deck is the deck that you begin with for that game. Right. Not, Not for the, the match, match, for the game. So every time you shuffle up and you uh, put your deck to your, give your deck to your opponent for additional uh, shuffling and cuts or whatever, any randomness they want to do to it, uh, that thing, if it adheres to this uh, restriction that you're you're going to be presenting, that's what has to adhere to this for you to legally use the card in your sideboard as your companion for the deck. Yeah, and it can still be in your sideboard. Right. Right. There's being in your sideboard and then being in your sideboard and revealing it as a companion. Right. And you actually do this reveal as a companion before you start your, your opening game randomization. So it, it's sort of slotting itself in the, in the starting the game procedure in a weird location. Uh, basically, like when you're getting ready to go. Um, so it's basically, it's really before you present to your opponent. You, you show the companion to your opponent. Uh, they know now that, okay, uh, you're adhering to this deck building restriction, and it means you can legally, once per game, do this thing that companion cards let you do. Have we actually um, said what companion lets you do? We have not. Uh, so what does companion let you do, Brian? It's It lets you uh, cast the card from your sideboard <laughs> once. Once per game. Yep. Correct. You can cast... No, once ever. It's it's basically like like that blacker lotus. You got to tear the card up after you you cast it out of your sideboard, right? Uh, and it, it's it's also important to note that you can only have one companion uh, for a given game. So you can only so if you you might have multiple companions in your sideboard that the deck that you're going to be starting with uh, is legal for. You can only choose one of them, uh, and then that one once in that game. You can cast it from your sideboard. Uh, you still have to obey all the normal timing restrictions for casting a card of that type. Usually it's a creature. If it doesn't have flash, you have to has to be your turn during one of your main phases with, with an empty stack. All of that still applies. Once it's on the stack from the sideboard, it's part of the current game, right? So you, you sort of get a free extra spell at that moment. Um, and then whatever happens to it, it, it goes to all the zones it would go to. So if it resolves, it goes to the battlefield. If they counter it, it's going to go usually to the graveyard. Um, they can exile it, it can bounce it, it can shuffle into your library. But once it's once it's been cast from your sideboard, it remains with your deck, with your library and, and graveyard and all those other play zones for the rest of that game. 
The deck building requirements uh, for the companion are going to apply to your starting deck. Uh, they do not apply to your sideboard. So in this particular case, uh, Zirda, the, the Dawn Waker, your sideboard can have, if you were planning on using her in game one, uh, in game for your sideboard could have 14 cards that don't have activated abilities. That's that's fine. It's just if you then start siding those cards in uh, for game two, Zirda can't be your companion because you've broken that restriction. Now, one of the things that's going to be asked that came up a lot was, well, how's policy going to enforce this? How do I know my opponent's not cheating? And the I, the MIPG is going to be updated to tell us how to handle that. Mm-hmm. We can We can speculate a little bit. I definitely have thoughts on what I expect will happen, but it's all wild speculation and therefore probably not that helpful for right. the listening audience right now. So we're, we're just as eager as you are to figure out what policies is going to look like for these. Um, I would say that uh, it, it would it would help to sort of manage and, and mitigate concerns, understand that like um, I've been when when I've been playing magic, I've been secretly playing against opponents with one of these restrictions this whole time uh it just was never that it was just never that in our face because we've all been adhering to this four of restriction right max four of restriction um it's a, these are are just like that except they are you know they they're unique you have to keep track of them um which could cause some issues and and again i, I don't want to seem insensitive to the concerns for cheating but uh Remember that that players do have the ability to see these things when they happen, um, and therefore we can mitigate a lot of potential abuse in that way. Yeah. Right. If I if I if I'm showing you a card that says each permanent card in my deck has an activated ability, oh, and I've got four cards in my deck that don't have an activated ability, well, that's 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 actually not super strategic from my standpoint. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep, because it's going to be very apparent as soon as my opponent sees that, and then I have effectively, I'm playing with an illegal deck, because I've gone through the motions of saying my deck adheres to this rule, and then it's demonstrably true that it doesn't. Yep. So, let's let's talk about my personal favorite format, Commander. Uh, Yeah, speaking of Commander, yeah. Yeah, speaking of Commander. So, if I can have a Commander and a Companion, okay? Yep. They're, they're both hanging out in the same tent, like sipping Earl Grey tea or gin and juice, you know, whatever. The companion is not one of your hundred cards. It's also not your commander, okay? Or if it is your commander, it, you don't have to adhere to the deck building uh, restriction that's on it. But you can have a, your commander and your companion, and your companion is not one of your 100 cards. All right, and that's... And then basically it works the same... For the the rest, because most commander decks you don't have sideboards, and this is why they uh, they banned the one otter companion companion in commander because uh, its restriction is basically you're playing a singleton format, which you already are, so it's free in any deck that could legally include it, which is a little silly, uh, yep. and that unless I miss something is the other very complicated mechanic from the set. So basically, yep. we're we gotta be like more than halfway yeah. through now, nothing, right? Nothing, nothing new, nothing complicated, nothing. Ugh, keyword counters. Okay, <laughs> these are these are actually kind of sweet. These 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 are pretty cool. So a keyword counter. Let me let me just read you a card. Okay, I'm gonna say uh, there's a card called Fully Grown. It's two to green. It's an instant. 
target creature gets plus three, plus three until end of turn, put a trample counter on it. Now what's sweet about this is, I kind of understood, just, just on that, I understand what's going on. That counter is going to give this creature trample. And we've been exposed to other types of counters. We've been, we've been exposed to brick counters and doom counters and eyeball counters and music counters and polyp counters and poopa counters. And so, uh, the blaze counters, my personal yeah, favorite. Blaze counters, the land continues to burn. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we've been exposed to counters with lots of different, different words. Unlike those other types of counters, this is a counter that gives trample. The polyp counter does not give polyps. <laughs> um, well, we're thankful for that. Yeah, right. Man, I wish the music counter gave music. Anyway. Right. <laughs> or the, the eyeball counter gave eyeball. You're <laughs> the doom counter is just... Yeah, uh... so anyway. So a permanent with a keyword counter has that keyword. Okay, so a creature with a vigilance counter... Uh, is seen by a card called Alert Heed Bonder. Alert Heed Bonder has an ability that says, at the beginning of your upkeep, gain one life for each creature you control with vigilance. If random bear cub has a vigilance counter on it, bear cubs got vigilance. Okay. Yeah. Now, for for the currently existing keyword counters, so, you know, trample, first strike, uh, flying, etc. Yep. Yeah. Um, having more than one of the same type of counter is redundant. Yep. You go, shh, we're well, going to talk about timestamps in a second. But so if I have two flying counters on there, it's effectively the same thing. If I have two first strike counters, effectively the same thing. If I have two polyp counters, not the same thing. Okay. Because the card cares about the number of polyp counters. Anyway. Right. Uh, so some packs, uh, I know how, I know a lot of you are concerned for how are we going to keep track of this in paper for all that paper magic we get to play ever again. Uh, and I have an answer for you. Uh, some packs, you remember the, the punch out cards from Amonkhet? They had like exert and embalmed and stuff like that for if he didn't have like the special token plus minus one, minus one counters and brick counters. Um, they're, we're going to have those again. And they're going to have your, you know, flying and trample. And they've got the little iconography that Arena uses, uh, sort of, you know, pulling that forward for these different abilities, which I think is kind of a cool include. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you're going to put those, you can use those, put those on there. It's going to have the same problems, quote unquote, that the uh, punch out cards had before. So when you go and do one of these paper events with Ikoria, remember that, uh, you know, you're probably going to have a little bit of extra recycling to deal with. All right, man. It's time for the fun stuff. Uh, I'm a hip, cool judge, and I know hip, cool judge things, so how does this work in the layers system? I know. I'm just a simple judge. Right. I know my state-based layers and my my turn-based action. Well, actions is the word. that. <laughs> but anyway, I know my turn-based timestamps. How does this work? I was like, well, these are, these are continuous effects. I'm giving mm-hmm. a creature trample. I'm giving a creature flying. So that's... Layer six, mm-hmm. you go, okay, so the, the timestamp of when it gained flying is when the keyword counter went on it. So when it got flying is the timestamp of when it gained that ability. Same thing with trample, first strike. They all have their, they own, they, they have their independent timestamp. So a trample counter will have a different timestamp of a first strike, will have different uh, timestamp uh, than a flying counter. Okay. But now, if I have a trample counter, and then I put a trample counter on it later, 
Still got two trample counters, unless they add a state-based action that says these things explode, which they didn't mention. Mm-hmm. But the timestamp for both counters becomes the timestamp of the last counter. Mm-hmm. So it updates the timestamp of all previous counters of that same type to the newest one, uh, most likely so that if I have an effect that lets me remove some number of counters, I can't, like, I don't have to sit there and think about, okay, which one of these is the one... Oh, no, no, you one... removed the counter with the, with the, with the newer timestamp. Yeah, like, yeah, no. Yeah, totally. No, Does, no, no, no. So, so it, it lost flying because, because you gave it a flying counter, and then I played this card that caused it to lose flying. Right. That heavy armor thing caused it to lose flying. And then you gave it another counter, but then you remove the counter, so you remove the one with the later timestamp, so now it doesn't have flying again. That's a massive headache, and it's yeah. much better working this way. Uh, yep. Also, as a as a side note on this, I am really hopeful that there will be an Easter egg, uh, one of these punch-out cards that randomly has one with horsemanship for riding the Dilly Horse. <laughs> <laughs> That's just me personally, though. Last uh, mechanic for the set is not a new one. It's an oldie, but a goodie. Uh, and it is cycling. Cycling is back. I love this mechanic as somebody who likes to play a lot of magic. Uh, I like It's invariably really good for helping you uh, hit your land drops in limited. It gives you more options on every card. It turns situational cards into cantrips uh, so you can play them in your main deck when you normally wouldn't. I love this. Uh, and let's so I'm gonna briefly go over you know what what cycling is for people who who might not remember. So cycling is an activated ability on a card uh, that you could activate it from your hand. The, the ability only exists in your hand, um, and it's always gonna have a templating of cycling and then a cost. Uh, and what that means is that you pay that cost, discard the card with cycling. Uh, and then that puts an ability on the stack, cycling ability, uh, which will, when it resolves, make you draw a card. Real simple. You pay the cost of whatever the, the cost other than discarding is, plus discarding it. Uh, and then when the ability resolves, you draw a card. Real easy. Uh, lets you cantrip with every one of these. Uh, now, where it gets a little bit more complicated is sometimes uh, these cards will have triggered abilities when you cycle them let's say when you cycle whatever it is do a thing uh now because of how timing works remember that when you put when you put the ability on the stack to cycle something you've cycled it already uh and you're waiting to resolve that ability to draw the card but that triggers the when you cycle trigger that means that triggered ability is going to go above the cycling ability on the stack, which means you're going to resolve the triggered ability before you draw the card from cycling. Uh, if you remember way back from Amonkhet, Chef uh, at Monitor, which let you search up a land uh, when you cycled it. Again, it's, it's the same kind of thing. You want to make sure you're doing, you're resolving the triggered ability first and then drawing the card from cycling the card in question. Uh, and all this is important for effects that care about this. All these triggered abilities from cycling, they seem a lot like spells. Some of them give you like part of the effect of the spell that you're cycling, uh, but they're not spells. They're triggered abilities. So they can't be countered like spells. They can't be interacted with like spells. They're triggered abilities. They only can be dealt with with things that can deal with triggered abilities. Um, okay. You can still cycle a card with a triggered ability that has a target, when, when you cycle it, 
even if you don't have a legal target for that triggered ability. It doesn't prevent you from activating the ability. It just means that that triggered ability will immediately get removed from the stack for not having anything that you can target with it. Uh, so you, you just won't get that part of it, but you'll still be able to cycle the card. I sort of powered through that. <laughs> anything else on cycling? No. Now we're getting into card-specific notes. Before we do that, um, just real quick, want to talk about Two-Headed Giant. Uh, some cards say each opponent. That's cool. That means in Two-Headed Giant, that hits both of your opponents. We're not going to talk about those cards if that's the only thing to talk about. So if you're all like, oh, you didn't talk about this one that's going to nug both of the opponents, uh, consider this the blanket covering all of those. There's way more cards that are far more interesting to discuss. <laughs> So, okay, now we're going to talk about specific I specific cards. This this card, this first card we love, I love its name. It's, it's such Ar a good name. Archipelagore <laughs> for a 7-7 seven, seven Leviathan for 5 blue blue. Has mutate, okay, uh, for 5 and a blue. It says, when whenever this creature mutates, tap up to X target creatures, where X is the number of times this creature has mutated. Those creatures don't untap during their controller's next untap step. So we talked about, like, the first time it mutates, that's one. Then the second time, that's two. Stuff like that. So the only thing that's really significant about this card, other than its awesome name, is that you can target creatures already tapped. Okay, it doesn't say tap up to X target tapped creatures. It says tap up to X target creatures. So there's no targeting restriction. And then those creatures, whichever ones you chose... They just don't untap during their controller's next untap. There's another card in the set called Frost Links that does the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, without the mutate clause, it just says, you know, it, it, it targets a creature an opponent controls, and then it doesn't untap. Same thing. So that's all. Yeah, that, that card name rules, and is a, it's a, an auspicious start to our card-specific notes. Fair. So I see you, you've listened to the show in the past. I, I have been a longtime listener third time hoster uh <laughs> auspicious sterics is the next card we want to talk about uh this is four and a green for a creature elk beast it's got that fun little mutate mechanic we talked about for five and a green uh it says whenever this creature mutates exile cards from the top of your library until you exile x permanent cards where x is the number of times this creature has mutated put those permanent cards onto the battlefield woof the Free stuff. This is like Genesis Wave on a mutate thing. Mm -hmm. That's kind of cool. Um, so this is mostly pretty straightforward uh, because if, if provided you remember what permanent cards are um, until you get to auras. So when auras are put onto the battlefield through effects that aren't the, a spell of an aura resolving, they don't have a target, right? So it's what what it ends up attaching itself to is not clear from that targeting so we have this little thing in the rules that says if nora is coming onto the battlefield without a target like if it's coming out from from a, another effect um the controller of those auras chooses what it will enchant as it enters the battlefield uh this is important because it's not targeting like the aura spell would be it gets around hexproof so if i've flipped a pacifism effect right I can, okay, okay, here's a permanent card, here's a here's a pacifism, we'll just call it a pacifism, uh, my opponent has a slippery bogle, 
I can go, okay, I'm going to attach this pacifism to the slippery bogle. That works. That's totally legal and how it's supposed to work. Um, however, it still cares about being able to legally enchant the thing. Uh, so I can't put something on, I can't enchant something that has protection from white with that pacifism. I can't say I want to, I want to attach this to your archon of absolution. Uh, recent creature with uh, protection from white, because that's not a legal thing to be for that aura to be attached to. Okay, so provided it's legal to attach that aura to it, um, you you have to. You, wow, just so totally lost my train of thought. Provided it's legal to attach the aura to the object, you can do it, and hexproof is not a consideration because hexproof cares about targeting, not about attaching. Whereas protection cares about attaching. Uh, let's see what else we got going on here. Um, if you do flip an aura, but there's nothing legal for it to enchant to attach to. Uh, trying to think of one off the top of my head. So like in soul artifact, and there's no artifacts on the battlefield, right? Um, if I if I flip that, this still tries to uh, put that permanent card onto the battlefield from exile from the pile that it's exiling. Um, but it can't do it. Uh, because it can't do it because there's nothing for it to attach to, it stays in the zone that it was in. So if you're in Soul Artifact, doesn't have an artifact to attach to, it's going to stay in exile from this effect, from this ability. Yep. Um, everything here is coming in at the same time, right? So you're you're exiling all of the cards until you hit the correct number of permanents equal to the number of times that uh, the creature has mutated. You exile all, everything at once, and then everything's coming onto the battlefield all at the same time. So everything sees everything else entering, um, and also, if I have an artifact, right, so if I got a, a an ornithopter, I can't put that insole artifact onto that ornithopter because that ornithopter had to, would have to already be on the battlefield for me to try to attach the aura coming from exile going to the battlefield too it has to already be on the <laughs> battlefield for you to do okay that, right Fair enough <laughs> right um so that's that's one of the more complicated little rules bits now what if my permanent is uh i flip over a bear cub and a clone mm -hmm. i can clone that bear cub right no no uh because the hmm. clone enters the battlefield replacement effect you're making that choice before it's on the battlefield which means Bear Cub is not also not on the battlefield. So you have to look at the at what's on the battlefield prior to everything coming in, uh, which means nothing that's coming in at the same time is a legal choice for you to clone. Fine, I'll just copy the auspicious Starix and get a bunch of uh, a bunch of triggers to copy all of its times that it's mutated. Well, except that you won't, because as we discussed earlier, when you copy a creature that has that has a bunch of mutate effects. You're not mutating it. That creature's just entering the battlefield. So I'm, you'll get entered the battlefield triggers, but you will not get mutate triggers. You know, it'd be a lot cooler if you just agreed sometimes. I mean, <laughs> would it? I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. One of us has to care about the rules here, Brian. Hey, man, this is an unset. It's got Sharknado in it. There are sure. no rules. I'll start yes and to you eventually, I swear. Okay, cool. <laughs> cool. If one of the permanents that you're flipping is a land, uh, doesn't count against however many land 
lands you can play, because you're not playing that land. It's entering the battlefield through another effect, just like if you had gotten it off of Far Seek or Explosive Vegetation or an effect like that. Um, and if you have fewer cards in your library, uh, then, the, like, if you flip over your entire library and you haven't hit X yet, you're done. Uh, you will, in fact, have exiled your entire library. Uh, and note that this doesn't put the exiled cards back into your library. Uh, they stay exiled. So that could matter if you, you know, you could potentially be at risk of exiling your entire library from this effect, which maybe you want that. But uh, that's something to keep in mind. Next, I'm going to talk about two cards simultaneously. These cards are back for more and Savai Thundermane. Savvy? I, I say Savai. I might not be I right. Think, I think Savvy sounds cooler. It makes you sound like Jack Sparrow. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. What we're going to talk about on these two cards are reflexive triggers. So reflexive triggers are basically these triggers on a card that trigger off of something else. Confused at the words I just said? Well, here, let me give you an example. Back for more, it's an instant for four black and green. It says return target creature card from your graveyard to the battlefield. Period. When you do, comma, it fights up to one target creature you don't control. That second clause, the when you do, that's the reflexive trigger. It triggers off of the first part. So return target creature card from your graveyard to the battlefield. Back for more has a single target. The creature card in your battle in your graveyard. When you bring it back, when you do, it fights up to one target creature, so then you declare the target. So the important thing is, you don't declare that second target until after you've already chosen and the uh, the, the target, the uh, creature in your graveyard, and it's come back to the battlefield. Okay, Savai Thundermane says, is oh, sorry, is a, a red and a white for an elemental cat, 3-2. It says, whenever you cycle a card, you may pay two. Okay, there you go. That's that's what it does. And then it says, when you do, Savai Thundermane deals two damage to target creature and you gain two life. So with that, you cycle a card, Savai Thundermane triggers, and says, hey, you can pay two. And if you do pay two, and only two, you can't just pay like four or six, whatever. You pay two, then when you do, that causes the other trigger to go on the stack, in which case you would choose the target creature to deal the damage to. Like, that's very important because it means you don't have to you don't have to declare what you're targeting when you go to pay two, but your opponent might like that because now you have to pay two before you're pointing at something, and so now they get to know if you're going to do that or not. This is, you might remember, uh, judges might remember the if you do templating. Uh, this is not that. This behaves differently. Um, and so it, it triggers off the, the previous text, right? Yep, it's when you do, not if you do. Correct. The if you do was all part of the same effect. The when you do is a separate trigger. But it's still part of the, it's it's a little weird because it's still part of that, one, it's one ability that triggers from the first part of itself. So like, if they counter the whenever you cycle a card, the whole thing goes away. Not that it like, will yeah. really matter either way in that case, but yeah. Yeah, to, to make like, what a difference a little word makes, if you changed when you do to if you do on back for more you would actually have to choose the target creature that you are bringing back to the battlefield and the target creature you don't control for it to fight at the same time. Right. Yeah. And so the, the but in this particular case, 
you only are broadcasting the information about what creature you're going to bring back and you don't bring back, you don't fight the creature, you don't let the opponent know what creature you're going to fight until after it's already resolved. Now, it does mean if they do something like they uh, they exile the card from your graveyard, back from war is going to be canceled and you don't do the second half at all. Mm-hmm. But it was, that was going to happen. That's, that's the same thing as if like I've got a Graftrigger's Cage in play and you foolishly cast back for more. Uh, the whole thing's not going to happen because the first part won't happen. Next up, we've got this cute little friend called Blitzleech. Uh, it's a 5 and a black for a creature leech. It's a 5-2. It has flash. Uh, and when Blitzleech enters the battlefield, target creature and opponent controls gets minus 2, minus 2 until end of turn. Okay. Remove all counters from that creature. So why are we talking about this card? It actually honestly has pretty simple rules text, right? Um, yeah. Well, we want to talk about state-based actions. So remember, you're checking state-based actions any time a player would receive priority before they do, right? You're going to check them, in this case, after this spell resolves, after the triggered ability resolves. Uh, we're constantly checking to see what's going to happen. Um, so there are cards that care about cards going to the graveyard with counters on them, right? Um, this card removes the counters before state-based actions are checked, because we're still resolving the ability at that time. So if we minus two, minus two the creature, and it ends up with like minus with a zero or negative one toughness, we're still resolving the ability until we've removed all the counters, so that creature won't die with the counters on them. Uh, so remember when you're processing these things, remember you resolve the whole active thing on the stack, be it an ability or a spell, do all the things on it, then check state-based actions and apply effects appropriately. Um, yep. And I this also will matter for things with uh, plus one, plus one counters, because obviously if you're removing all the counters, it's going to change the power and toughness, which will change whether or not the minus two, minus two kills the creature. Um, so if you've got two plus one, plus ones on a two, two, uh, this trigger will kill that creature. The, the, real, the real important thing here is there are some cards in this set that care about creatures or permanents that go to the grid of the graveyard with counters on them. Mm-hmm. Okay, this card right here removes those counters before it would go to the graveyard, so it won't have those counters on it when it goes. So whatever theoretical card that cares about <laughs> permanents leaving the battlefield with counters on them oh, won't boy. care. Oh, boy, very excited that's, to talk about that that's good, called good rock. foreshadowing. <laughs> okay, uh, Call of the Death Dweller. Uh, this art is like some sort of creepy Halloween rat. Two and a black. It's a sorcery that says return up to two target creature cards with total converted mana cost three or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. Put a death touch counter on either of them, then put a menace counter on either of them. Pretty straightforward card. I'm just going to answer, address two things. One, if a creature card has X in its cost, that's zero. So like X, X green, it, that's, that's a converted mana cost of one. Okay. The second thing is this wording right here. It says put a death touch counter on either of them and then put a menace counter on either of them. You get one death touch counter to put on one of the critters you brought back. You get one menace counter to put on either of the critters you brought back. They can be the same creature, but that doesn't mean both get a death touch counter and both get a menace counter. Don't be greedy. Yep. Uh, and the, the X in its cost thing, that's true of any card. Any card with X and X cost, uh, anywhere other than the stack that X is considered zero for converted mana cost. Uh, I would say that's uh, clear as crystal. 
So, uh, yeah. Crystalline Giant is the next card we want to talk about. It is three mana, three generic mana, for an artifact creature giant. It's a 3-3. Three, three. And then it has this triggered ability. It says, at the beginning of combat on your turn, choose a kind of counter at random that Crystalline Giant doesn't have on it from among... Poopa counter. Flying, First Strike, Death Touch, Hexproof, Lifelink, Menace, Reach, Trample, Vigilance, and plus one, plus one. Put a counter of that kind on Crystalline Giant. So that's a heck of a lot of words on something. Basically, it's saying, randomly choose from all of those potential types of counters... Ten. ...that it doesn't have already, and then whatever one you randomly chose, put one of those on it. And then once, if it has one of those already... You don't choose. Uh, you're going to make that choice on resolution. So there's no opportunity between knowing what counter somebody's going to get and it going on the giant for someone to do anything. But while the ability's on the stack, you could, for example, use an instant speed effect to put a plus one plus one counter on it to remove that as one of your random options, right? Yeah. It will keep triggering every turn until for all eternity, even if it has all ten types of counters on it. It just won't do anything because it's trying to determine a random result from a null set, right? Yeah, uh, but that's it, a judge's tower yep. rule thing, right? Um, it could matter. Like I could have like the fact that the trigger always goes on the stack. If I've you know people get priority in between there, I can remove one of the counters it has. If my opponent like thinks, oh cool, I'm going to remove this, and then you go, well, that trigger's resolving, and I'm going to put this uh, this Poopa counter. Uh, still not a legal counter. Darn it, I have to, I will yes and you eventually, I swear. By the end of this episode, I'm going to say, yeah, Poopa Counter, you've got it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. And keep in mind, it's only caring about these uh, different abilities as counters. It doesn't care if it has the ability or not. It cares if it has a counter of that ability or not for whether or not that's part of your options. So if you've got um, an aura on it that's giving it flying or trample or what have you, um but it doesn't have a flying or a trample counter, it can still get a flying or trample counter. It cares about the counters, not about what its abilities are. All right. So the next card, we're up to the, we're up to the Ds. Uh, it is white, black, and it's Death's Oasis. For white, black, and a green, it's an enchantment that says whenever a non... You know this card's going to be good because it's got tiny font. <laughs> whenever a non-token creature you control dies... Put the top two cards of your library into the graveyard, okay? So far with me? Non-token creature, you control, dies, mill twice, okay? Then return a creature card with lesser converted mana cost than the creature that died from your graveyard to your hand. So if the creature that died had a converted mana cost of five, we're looking at four or less. If it was nine, we're looking at eight or less. If it was one, we're looking at our, th- our ornithopters from earlier. It also has one... For one, sacrifice Death's Oasis, you gain life equal to the greatest converted mana cost among creatures you control. Okay. So, things of note. First ability does not target. Okay. So, it doesn't, since it doesn't have a target, you're not declaring the target when you put it on the stack, which means you're going to mill those two cards, and then out of what's left, which includes those two milled cards, you get to pick uh, the creature, the, the creature that meets that criteria. So, it can meet the the cards that milled can be, can be returned. If there's a creature card with X in its converted mana cost, X is zero. Yes, good. We've already covered that. 
You use the converted mana cost of the creature as it last existed on the battlefield, not as it was in the graveyard. So if I have a mutate, a mutated creature, I'm going to use its converted mana costs in the, that's on the topmost card. I'm not going to look at both of them. I'm not going to add them or anything, anything like that. If it's a clone of a bear cub, clone has a converted mana cost of four, but bear cub, which it's copying, has a converted mana cost of two. Let's see here. And if you animate, this is, okay, corner <laughs> mm-hmm. Casey. If you animate Death's Oasis and turn it into a creature and it dies, maybe by sacrificing it to its own second ability, it's going to trigger its own first ability because it is a non-token creature you control dying. So you would mill the top two cards of your library and then Death's Oasis has a converted mana cost of three, so you'd be looking for a card with lesser converted mana cost to return to your hand. Mm-hmm. Last note for on that for all the spikes in the audience, uh, that last part, the returning a creature to your hand, uh, is not optional. Uh, so if the only creature you've got in there that qualifies is something you actually want in the graveyard instead, tough cookies. Uh, you have to pick it up. Somebody who's really good at dealing out tough cookies is our friend Dranith Magistrate. Is he really a friend? <laughs> I don't think he's a very good friend, but he's uh depends on who you ask. Uh, he's a good friend of the person who controls him, I guess. Oh, he's a one in a white for a human wizard, like a, like a senator controlled by the oil lobby. Yeah, the oil like the oil lobby loves that yeah. guy. He's a he's a great friend yep. there. Um, right. Uh, so he's a one in a white for a creature human wizard. He's a one three. Uh, and he just has one simple ability: your opponents can't cast spells from anywhere other than their hands. I mean, that sounds like how magic normally works, right? How bad is this? Nah, it's not so bad at all. Locks their right? companions in their sideboard. Uh, they can't cast them now be- as long as this guy's in play. That's fine. Now, uh, something to remember with this card is that uh, this is a this is a standard blanket rule in the comprehensive rules. Uh, can't always beats can. So if something says, "Hey, you can cast this," you know, exile this any number of cards or whatever. You can cast those cards without paying their mana cost. You can cast this until your next turn. Um, this beats that. So unless that spell is in their hand, they can't cast it from that location. Uh, because this trumps the, the cant on this trumps any permission that would be explicitly granted. If anything lets you cast from the top of the library, anything like that. So no jump start, no flashback, uh you can't be casting um creatures for their unearth costs, uh nothing like that. Um <laughs> Uh, so if you're, if you're a fan <laughs> of this card called Possibility Storm or Knowledge Pool, uh, this card can make you a real jerk. Uh, yeah. Because... Okay, good. <laughs> when you started reading it, it was like, oh, if you're a fan of the possibility, I was like, that's not what the notes say. Yes. That's not. Look, I, I don't want, I don't want to pass value judgments on people. I'll pass value judgments. Enjoy the game however you wish to enjoy the game, but... Uh, in this particular case, I don't think you're going to make a lot of friends. Because, yes, you can lock somebody out of being able to do anything because those cards stop the spell being cast from hand and replace it with a spell that they can't legally cast because of your Dranith Magistrate. Um, Teferi, number t- three Teferi, three Fairy yeah. does the same thing. Yeah, they're jerks too. Yeah, they, I mean. I'm passing judgment. I'm fine. Um, I'm fine with it. Other I can things. sleep at night. If something says you can play, so like exile the top card of your library, so uh, Chandra, uh, 
Oh, what was the Chandra that did this? It was not Torture of Defiance. It was the other uh, Corset one prior to that um, Mm -hmm. that let you play a card that you exiled off the top or like the Outpost Siege would let you do this, right? Outpost Siege naming cons. Exile a card. uh, You can play it this turn. Play means you can play lands through Dranith Magistrate because Dranith Magistrate, this card only cares about casting spells from the hand, not playing cards from the hand. So you can still play lands. Um, And only stops casting of things. So anything that uh, would exile things and then put them onto the battlefield, like our our friend Auspicious Sterix from earlier, uh, that still works as written. Uh, Doesn't stop that because you're not casting those cards. Only cares about casting spells from zones other than the hand. All right. The next card is Eerie Ultimatum for for white, white, black, 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 green, green. It's a sorcery that says return any number of permanents with different card names from your graveyard to the battlefield. Just a quick reminder, permanent cards are artifacts, creatures, enchantments, lands, or planeswalkers. Permanents are chosen on resolution, so the opponent can't wait to see what you pick before they decide to counter Eerie Ultimatum. But it's probably a good idea to just count right? Because, you know, you can choose to return... Just one permanent if you want to. Because, I mean, it says, like, you know, eh, they got to have different names. And if I pick one, does it really have a different name from another thing? Be quiet. Um, you can, But you can. If you only have one permanent, you can get it. And then, yeah, you can return an aura. But we already talked about that with Auspicious Starix. So I'm not going to go over that again. And that is the eeriest of ultimatums. Uh, that has a lot of emergent properties uh, to that card when you resolve it. Uh, so Emergent Ultimatum is another one of these sorceries. There's a, there's a cycle of these. This one costs black, black, green, 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 blue, blue sorcery. And it says, search your library for up to three monocolored cards with different names and exile them. An opponent chooses one of those cards. Shuffle that card into your library. You may cast the other cards without paying their mana costs. Exile Emergent Ultimatum. Okay, so a monocolored card. We're going to break this down. You're searching the library for up to three monocolored cards. Uh, has to be exactly one of the five colors and nothing else. So Kitchen Finks does not count. That is both white and green. Even though you can cast it for mono white, you can cast it for mono green. It is both of those colors. Um, gold cards obviously are right out. Colorless cards. You can't pick a Thought Knots here. Colorless, still not a color, right? Has to be uh, white, blue, black, green, red, nothing else okay if you only have one card in your deck for whatever reason um that you can search for uh that's gonna get shuffled because an opponent the opponent has to choose one of those cards they can't choose not to because they can clearly see they are cards so they will choose that one it goes right back into your library you do have to cast the cards immediately because they're being cast as part of the resolution of this spell's text right so when it says you may cast the other cards without paying their mana costs, you make the choice of whether or not you're casting them while the spell is resolving before you have finished resolving. Okay? <laughs> okay. <laughs> what? It's true, because it has another line after that, right? It is, yeah. Right? Um, yeah. And technically it's even true if that is the last line. So yeah. you're going you're gonna to cast them, and you're going to decide what order they're going on the I... stack. Um, they're going on the stack on top of this, but this is still resolving. Uh, yeah. Then you're going to exile it That's a thing. for as the last step of it, uh, and then you're going to be done. 
Uh, when you're casting, we, we talked about this earlier, when you're casting without paying mana cost, uh, that is an alternate cost already, so you can't choose alternate costs. So you can't choose to mutate a card that you've exiled with this because you're already casting it without paying its mana cost. You can't even choose to cast it and pay for the mutate to do it the other way. The only option you have is to cast it without paying its mana cost, which means you can only do the base cast of the spell, not any alternate. But you can pay additional costs if the spells have those. Uh, or you may be required to pay additional costs. So if this, if you grab Cathartic Reunion, right, that's a monocolored card, you do still have to discard two cards as an additional cost to cast that Cathartic Reunion. Okay? Okay. Uh, and then if you're casting a spell that's got X in its mana cost, you have to declare that X to be zero. I know it's sad. I know you want to deal 100 billion damage, uh, with your fireball or whatever, but um, you you can't. And lastly, the spells you're casting as part of the resolution of this ability, uh, you're ignoring timing restrictions because you're casting it in the middle of resolving a spell, and that's not normally legal for any spell under the sun. So you the game sort of has to let you disobey timing restrictions for all of them for you to be able to legally cast these. So you can cast creatures, you can cast sorceries, that's all fine. Enchantments, go nuts. Alright, the next card is Exuberant Wolf Bear. That's <laughs> how I feel about this podcast right now. A wolf, a wolf bear. Um, that's its creature type. The Exuberant Wolf Bear is indeed a wolf bear. For three to green, it is a 4-4 four, four that basically only exists so that I can, uh, in the release suit, so I can call it a mega chonker. <laughs> Seriously, go look at the art. This is, this is a hefty boy. Um, whenever Exuberant Wolf Bear attacks, you may change the base power and toughness of target human you control to exuberant wolf bear's power and toughness until end of turn. So, a few things to note. This isn't a power and toughness swap, okay? It's just, the human just gets it. Whatever, whatever exuberant wolf bears, whatever, whatever this, uh, heck and chonkers, uh, power and toughness is, the human just gets it. So, while the, while the ability goes on the stack, the power and toughness change just happens as the ability resolves. Mm-hmm. Okay. Any effects that modify the power and toughness of the human but don't set it will still apply. So if there's a giant growth effect or something like that on the human, okay, the human's going to get the 4-4 four, four, and then the uh, the giant growth effect of the plus 3 plus 3 is going to gonna kick in. Now, here's the other thing. The human's base power and toughness is set to uh, this hefty chunk's actual power and toughness, not its base power and toughness. So I could... Giant growth exuberant wolf bear, making it a 7 7. Then it attacks. The human's base power and toughness is going to become 7 7. All right. And if this absolute unit leaves the battlefield before the trigger resolves, the absolute unit being the exuberant wolf bear, uh, we use the last known information to determine, uh, what the human's power and toughness is going to be. And that, that's, just go check out the art. This thing's amazing. Right. Uh, less known information being relevant there because if it leaves the battlefield from a minus X minus X ability, things get a little interesting. I don't think it can actually go. Uh, they did a rules change. Correct. It just caps out at zero. It can't. Right. It can't go negative, but it will make it be zero. Right. If it died through that. Although if there were minus one, minus one, count, whatever. It's a whole thing. Uh oh. I use that to, to spill over into this next part uh which i'm very excited about because uh brian they just changed the game spells got trample now did you know that 
I, I did because I, I, I wrote this in the, yes. in the... Yeah. Okay. So this, like, we were talking about this being, like, a bunch of mechanics from Unstable earlier, and this one basically is. So we're, we're talking about, we got this card called Flame Spill. Uh, Flame Spill is two and a red for an instant. Uh, it says Flame Spill deals four damage to target creature. That's all normal. We're used to cards like that. It's a pretty good rate. Yep. Seems good. It has a second line of text that says excess damage is dealt to that creature's controller instead. What the Basarking Geflark does that mean? Well, <laughs> excess okay. damage is a new term. Uh, it's not a new concept, uh, really, but we've just we've never applied it to spells before, right? Uh, when we're whenever we're calculating trample on creatures, we're always determining okay, what's lethal? What what amount of damage is beyond that? Okay, that can be dealt to the player, right? So we were calculating sort of excess damage before during damage assignment, right? This spell is doing the same kind of thing during its resolution. So damage, for, for rules nerds out there, damage used to be a three-step process. Uh, it is now a four-step process. And the new step number one, the step number one is now new, uh, is figuring out what excess damage is, right? Making that calculation. Um, so it's whatever is left over after lethal damage right basically what we're doing is we're saying if i flame spill dealing four damage to an o2 right when that damage happens i get to assign the remaining two damage because two is what was lethal to the o2 to the player okay pretty straightforward uh in the case of flame spill if the target gets removed uh flame spill won't resolve sure but what if it's a fight effect instead? This is where yeah. some players may get confused. So there's another card called Ram Through that's got the same language, excess damage on it. Uh, Ram Through is one under green, instant. Target creature you control deals damage equal to its power to target creature you don't control. So it's a punch, right? Not a fight, but a punch. If the creature you control has trample, so it checks if the creature has trample, excess damage is dealt to that creature's controller instead. So... This might catch some, trip some people up who are thinking about this exactly as trample. Uh, because if I'm blocking this creature with trample with an O3, and say I've got four power, right? Block it with a three toughness creature. Uh, if that creature, that three toughness creature dies, uh, I get to assign all four of that trample damage to the player, right? Because I don't have a blocker anymore, all that, all that damage gets to go through. However, if I'm doing this ram through, if I'm targeting with ram through, four power once again to this three toughness creature and that three toughness creature goes away well now the damage doesn't happen at all uh and the creature doesn't know i guess you could say to go ahead and push that through to the player so that's a case where it doesn't work intuitively like trample would work right uh because it's still this is the same kind of reason why uh when a fight card is doing something the fight doesn't happen the punch doesn't happen if both targets aren't there so we we need that to be there if in order either for, target. What if if either target? Right, if either target's not there. So in this particular case, uh, I got to have the target to to deal damage, right? And then the target of the creature I don't control, if that creature goes away, I do not get to deal any excess damage to the creature's controller because now we don't have excess damage on the spell. It's very weird, but it's kind of cool that that they finally found a way to sort of write this into the rules in a way that doesn't just put the word trample on a spell and say. Eh, you figure it out. Uh, and damage here is being dealt all at the same time for effects that care. And we'll get to this more for cards that do this, but uh, 
you're dealing the you, you go in and figure out your excess damage and then you're doing things like applying doubling effects and things like that right so you figure out what excess damage is with the native amount of damage whatever that is uh and then go forward from there you are carrying about uh what lethal is considered though so if your ram through creature has trample and death touch you still get to do the trample death touch thing uh one damage is considered lethal so the excess gets calculated as the remainder of that creature's power for what gets dealt to the player uh the next card is general's enforcer uh it's for white uh white and a black uh for a two three human soldier it says legendary creatures you control have indestructible and for two white and a black Exile target card from your graveyard. If it's a creature card, create a 1-1 white human soldier token. So this is really just a, a, a one a single comment here. Remember that Instructible, Indestructible just stops the damage from destroying the creature. It's still marked on the creature. So if I've got a 4-4 legendary human that's indestructible, that's got 4 damage marked on it, that 4 damage is sitting there trying to destroy the creature, and Indestructible is just saying, nah, nah, nah. If General's Enforcer bites it, that creature's going to lose Indestructible, and it's got four damage marked on it. It's a 4-4. Four, four. It's going to the yard. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's I have one pretty question. much it. The second ability is pretty vanilla. Who's gen- who is General? Uh, Who's General? Yeah, because I have a bone to pick with their Enforcer. Are they related to specific in any way? Uh, Well, no. If, if you look, this card, the specific art is... Um, it looks like was that Romulan that like Eric Bana played in one of the Star Trek movies in, in Nemesis? Yeah, it wasn't a Romulan. It was the the Remans, right? Because though they were the yeah the ones with the like some of the had telepathic abilities and whatnot. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So when uh, the Jedi were sneaking on the ship. <laughs> And uh, they found Dumbledore's hat. Right, right, obviously. Right, Eric Bana was there, and then he turned into uh, the Hulk and and beat him all up. Yeah, uh, and that yeah. was where we got General from. Uh, yeah. Moving on from that pile of, uh, from that deep dive, uh, we've got Jiruda. Nope. You were yes and there. You were yes and there. <laughs> yes. Thank you very much. Yes, yes. Okay. We're, I'll get there eventually. Uh, so Jiruda, Doom of Depths. Uh, this is four and um, Bluke, Bluke, uh, blue-black hybrid, blue-black <laughs> hybrid. Uh, for a legendary creature, Demon Kraken, uh, six, six. Uh, and this is one of the companion cards. Uh, we're not actually going to talk about that, though. Uh, we already covered companion. We're going to talk about this triggered ability. Uh, it says, when Jiruda enters the battlefield, each player puts the top four cards of their library into their graveyard, put a creature with an even converted mana cost from among those cards onto the battlefield under your control. Uh, so triggered ability can actually find... So the reason why this one's on here... This can find cards that went to a different zone than the battlefield if they went there uh, via a replacement effect if, and went to a public location. So or went to the graveyard. Yeah. So like they're uh, it's it's mill in the top four, right? But if you've got like a rest in peace in play and they go to exile, uh, Jiruda immediately sees these are the cards that I put, so I'm gonna pick from among these one with an even converted mana cost. So I can st- you can still choose one of those cards in exile to put on the battlefield, uh, which may or may not be intuitive to people. But that is how the rules process this. Um, we're going to talk about this with another card later, but also quick note. Uh, the game of magic considers the number zero to be even. I know. I know. Zero is even according to magic. Sure. 
I mean, it's magic. It doesn't have to obey the rules of, like, math and stuff. Correct. But a card that does have to obey the rules of math and stuff <laughs> is Gigantha the Wellspring, which is an elemental elk for four and a green, I don't know, a red-green red green hybrid. I was trying to do your... Grack. Blue. Or not Grack. Uh, this is Gred. This Gred? Gred. Okay. Yes. Okay. So, Gentha the Wellspring uh, has a companion ability, and we are going to be talking about that because it takes a little bit of parsing. Uh, the companion ability is no card in your starting deck has more than one of the same mana symbol in its mana cost. Then it has this tap to add Wooberg to your pool. Uh, this mana uh, can't be spent to pay generic mana costs. Cool. Okay, so generic mana costs is the number in the gray circle. So uh, G uh, Gigantha the Wellspring uh, is for four and a Grek? Gred? Gred. Whatever. Gred, Gred. The four is generic mana. Okay. Now, <laughs> no card in your starting deck has more than one of the same mana symbol in its mana cost. This looks at the exact mana symbols for the comparison rule. Okay. A red-green hybrid is different from a red mana symbol or a green mana symbol. Okay. And the, the colorless hybrid of two slash green is different from green. Um, so... As an example, uh, one green green is bad because I've got two green mana symbols in my cost. XXR is bad because I've got X in there twice. Red, anything with red red, anything that like, you know, blue blue, black black, those are all out because I've got two blue and two black. Now, one, one other card, if you are playing the Arabian Nights printing of Aladdin's Lamp, uh, you also can't play that card because its converted mana cost is 5-5. Five, five. Yeah, so I, that's two, like, there are two five generic mana symbols, so that's yeah. they're the that's the same symbol. Sorry, tough breaks. Yeah, can't play it. Should have read can't the oracle it. text. Now, the oracle text says 10. Yeah. <laughs> okay, do you, do you know why this card says 5-5 five, five instead of 10? I think they hadn't found a way to put a double-digit number into yeah. there yet, so they had yeah. to, like, kitbash it. Right, exactly. Yep. The, if they put a, if they put a ten in there, it was too big and spilled outside the circle. So they were like, "I, I guess we just make the cost fifty five. Yeah. I don't know. I was playing back then, but I was not fortunate enough to own any Arabian Nights cards. Right, I couldn't find. I saw it. this card, and I was just like, I was like, I bet I can. Yep, there it is, five five. There you go. <laughs> Only one with a converted mana cost with a with a generic mana symbol in there twice that isn't X. Yeah, Brian putting that into the. Uh... The release notes uh, made me filled me with a sense of jubilation. <laughs> so, jubilant skybonder is the next card we want to talk about. This is a uh, one woo woo. Uh, that's white blue hybrid for those keeping track at home. For creature human wizard, uh, a two two. It has flying, and it says creatures you control with flying have quote spells your opponents cast that target this creature cost two more to cast end quote. So it's conferring that ability onto creatures you control with flying, of which it begins the game at least as a member, right? When it's on the battlefield, accepting mm -hmm. anything else, right? If they're trying to target, mul if your opponent's trying to target multiple of your creatures with flying while this is in play, they're going to have to pay two more for each one of those creatures. So if I'm trying to cast a fight with fire with kicker, right, to divide damage among three of your flyers 
uh, I'm going to have to pay an extra six mana, six generic mana for that privilege in order to do that, because it's two for each one of those creatures with flying that you're targeting. Uh, same thing if there are multiple multiple jubilant skybonders in play. So if I've got two of these in play, a plummet targeting any one of these creatures is going to cost you five and a green. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, five yeah. and a green. That is a pricey plummet. As as yeah. That's what that's why that's why the Skybonder's so jubilant is because it knows it just charged you six mana for a for a plummet. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Keep safe. Uh, for one and a blue is an instant counter target spell that counter uh, counter target spell that targets a permanent you control. Draw a card. It's very okay. simple, right? Yeah. Oh, it looks simple. Why are we talking about this one? This one's like easy. Okay. So here here's the thing. The, it says counter target. And then the rest of the clause tells you what it's targeting. So the counter target, and this is all one clause, spell that targets a permanent you control. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's not counter target spell and then some other stuff. It's counter target spell that targets a permanent you control. So this spell can have targets that aren't a permanent you control so long as the spell has a target that is a permanent you control. Okay. So if I, if, um, I guess the stupid example is is Hex. Love Hex. <laughs> hex says destroy six target creatures. Okay. So it doesn't let you it doesn't say up to. Right. Okay. So I my opponent has five creatures I want to kill them all, but because Hex requires six targets, uh I have to target one of my guys. So that's that's a, that's a particular situation and then they do something where I'm like, "Oh no, I don't want Hex to go off." Because then they'll just get all their creatures back and re-trigger stuff or whatever. I need to counter that. Okay. This Hex is a spell that is is targeting some of your stuff, some of my stuff. Okay. Didn't necessarily say these had to be great strategic examples. They're just rules examples. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, here's where, here's where the card earned its place in the release notes. It says, counter target spell that targets a permanent you control. Uh, Jacob is swords of plowsharing my creature. Your bear cub. Okay. My bear cub. Okay. I then cast Keep Safe. Okay. Then uh, Jacob does something to get rid of my bear cub. Okay. That <laughs> that Swords to Plowshares is no longer targeting a permanent I control. That permanent's gone. Mm-hmm. So Keep Safe says it's counter target spell that targets a permanent I control. It's now an illegal target. Swords of Plowshares is now an illegal target. So Keep Safe is going to not resolve, and I don't get to draw a card. Okay. Now, if that wasn't complicated enough... <laughs> Sorry, I'm giggling. Go back. Jacob is trying to... Swords of Plowshares my bear cub. Mm-hmm. I try and keep safe. Okay. And then, let's say, for whatever reason... I decide to give my bear cub protection from white. I've got a mother of runes and make give it protection from white. Okay. Swords to plowshares, you only check target legality on resolution and on casting. So it is still, Swords to plowshares is still targeting the bear cub with protection from white. It's going to fail to resolve due to a legal target when it checks. But it, not right now. Mm-hmm. So in that particular case... <laughs> My keep safe will target the swords to plowshares, and I will draw a card. Okay, so does that all make sense? Clear as mud? 
Uh, like in the notes, we say like this point's going to require going slow. And you you did an expert job. You were like some kind of of rules explaining prodigy. Uh, oh, was there. I? Yes. Okay. So speaking of prodigies, the next card we want to talk about is Kinnon Bonder Prodigy. Uh, this this is a creature for uh, green and blue, a legendary creature, human druid. It's a two two. Uh, it says whenever you tap a non land permanent for mana. Add one mana of any type that permanent produced. And then it has <clears throat> an activated ability for five green-blue. Look at the top five cards of your library. You may put a non-human creature card from among them onto the battlefield, then put the rest of on the bottom of your library in a random order. So, types of mana, right? So it says whenever you tap a non-land permanent for mana, add one mana of any type that permanent produced. Types include colorless. Colors of mana do not. But types do. So if you're tapping your wastes, or this wouldn't count for a waste, if you're tapping your uh, Hedron Archive or Mindstone, right, this will count for that. Those are non-land permanents. They're being tapped for mana. They'll give you, an, it, uh, Kinnon will give you an additional colorless. Tapping a permanent for mana has actual very specific rules meaning, right? It means you have to be tapping it for a mana ability. So you have to be tapping that permanent for a mana ability with the tap symbol that's on that permanent, all right? So all of those things need to be applied. You have to be tapping the, the permanent for a mana ability that's on itself. Uh, that mana ability has to have the tap symbol, okay? Uh, so it doesn't work with a card, for example, like a Heritage Druid. Heritage Druid says tap three elves, three untapped elves, and add green, green, green. Kinnon will not add another green mana to that, because the tap ability is not there, even if you're tapping Heritage Druid, so you're tapping it for its own mana ability, it doesn't have the tap symbol, okay? So that's a very okay. important distinction. Kinnon is the source of that extra mana, uh, if that matters, um, for Cavern of Souls type riders, right? But mana from Kinnon will not inherit any riders or restrictions from that mana ability. Uh, Cavern of Souls doesn't really qualify here because it's not a... Uh, it's not a non-land permanent. But if you've got a non-land permanent creating mana that says you can only cast this to cast, um, you can only, you only use this to cast non-creature spells or what have you. I, I fortunately did not think of an example. Uh, if you can, Brian, feel free to chime in. Any any Anything like that, any restrictions on what the mana can be used to, to uh, purchase effectively, what would cost that mana can be used to pay, or... Anything that comes along with it saying, you know, can't be countered if you if you spent this mana or whatever, any like Besaju, Cavern of Souls type things, none of that uh, is attached to the additional mana Kinnon makes. It just makes Roshin. one... Hmm? There we go. What? I think it's, I think it's uh, Roshin Meanderer adds four colorless to your mana pool, spend this mana only on costs that contain X. There you go. So, so it's four colorless mana, right? Kinnon will add an extra colorless mana. Four of that mana, the one, the four from the original permanent, can only be used to cast spells with X in, in the mana cost. Kinnon's colorless mana is just a colorless mana. It can be used for anything. So Kinnon just makes free from all additional stuff mana. It's just mana. It's nothing else. Okay? All right. Okay, so I'm going to talk about Lava Brink Adventurer. This is... <laughs> I don't know. Like the... What a good name. What a great card name. Lava Brink Venture. It's two and a, two and a white for a 3-3 three, three human soldier. As Lava Brink Venture enters the battlefield, choose odd or even. Zero is even. 
Lava Brink Venture has protection from each converted mana cost of the chosen value. Yep, one thing to remember, tokens. Unless the token is a specific copy of something, uh, the token's converted mana cost is zero. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if, you cho- if you've chosen even, uh, Lava Brink Venture has protection from tokens. That aren't copies okay. of blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that aren't copies of, of an actual thing. Then, if if Lava Brink Venture somehow gets onto the battlefield without making the choice, without having to make the choice, and I'm not talking about, like, forgetting to make the choice. I'm talking about, like, you manifest it or, I don't know, you cast it under an illusionary mask or something like that. <laughs> so when you finally do flip it up, when it was put face down, it didn't have that ability to choose, uh, when it enters the battlefield, choose odd or even. It didn't have that. So when you flip it face up, you know, it doesn't have, you don't get to suddenly go back and choose it. So that, that second ability that says it's got protection from things, uh, that doesn't matter either. Another way is if you, for some reason, I think there's a card that says, uh, uh, all creatures enter the battlefield is a copy of this creature. Uh, essence of the wild. Yeah. So if you have an essence of the wild and you cast a lava brink venture, you're not going to get that trigger either. It's <laughs> just. Oh, rules are great, right? Speaking, oh, oh, I'm a little bit jealous. You get to, you get to talk about the Tiger King. Uh, sure. I am actually not familiar uh, because I have not watched any of the show that everyone's uh, going on about, and uh, likely won't. Don't at me. We're going to talk about a new planeswalker. We have not seen this planeswalker of this name before. Uh, he's got a really nice tiger friend. Um, his name is Luca or Lucca. Not sure. I'm going to call him Luca. Coppercoat Outcast, in this case. Uh, Three red red. Legendary Planeswalker, Luca, obviously. Uh, Five starting loyalty. And boy, is this text tiny. Uh, So he's got three loyalty abilities. All right. Plus one, exile the top three cards of your library. Creature cards exiled this way gain. You may cast this card from exile as long as you control a Luca Planeswalker. Okay. Uh, So on that one... It can be any Planeswalker of the subtype Luka to cast those creatures. It, it doesn't have to be Luka Coppercoat Outcast. It could be anything that's got Luka as the Planeswalker subtype, uh, as long as you control them. And it doesn't have to even be, like, it doesn't have to be the one that exiled that card either. It just has to be, if you exiled it with this, uh, and then later you have a different Planeswalker of subtype Luka, you get to cast those creatures uh, from exile. Then we've got, uh, so for those, you still have to obey timing restrictions, since he doesn't say you can cast them uh, now, it's just you can cast them for as long as. So those effects are, you still have to pay costs, and you still have to obey the normal timing restrictions for casting those creatures. So if they have flash, you can cast them at instant speed, otherwise you have to cast them any time you could legally cast a creature. It's got other abilities. But uh, the only one, so we'll talk about the other two loyalty abilities, but last one on this ability. So if you exile an adventure card from Throne of Eldraine, for example, with Luca, uh, you can cast those as non-creature spells. Uh, so you can cast Fey of Wishes for uh, Granted, I think is the, the spell side of it, if you've exiled it with Luca, because it's a creature card in exile. And it says you may cast this card from exile as long as you control a Luca Planeswalker. So if you can cast it, it's giving you permission to cast it. Then you choose how you want to cast it. And in this case, you're like, well, I want to cast it as an adventure. Cool. Luca has no problem with that. 
The second ability we're not really going to talk much about. Um, it exiles a creature you control, reveals cards from the top of your library until you reveal a creature card with higher converted mana cost. Put it on the battlefield and put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. So it upgrades one of your creatures into uh, a bigger creature or a higher CMC creature uh, off of the top of your library, wherever it finds that. Right. The last one is just an each opponent effect. Uh, we talked about each opponent for uh, two at a giant why that's cool in this case it says each creature you control deals damage equal to its power to each opponent so your entire battlefield's gonna if you're playing two at a giant your entire battlefield's gonna nug the player on the left and nug the player on the right you're gonna get all of it the next card um is is called lamp <laughs> or uh y'all got any lamps or some sort of version of that no it's actually luminous brood moth for two white, white, it is a creature insect. That's three, four. That's a really big moth. Mm -hmm. Bruh. It is a flying creature that says whenever a creature you control without flying dies. Okay, so whenever a creature you control without flying dies, return it to the battlefield under its owner's control with a flying counter on it. Oh, this is, this is a good card. So, few, few things. If it dies at the same time as another creature you control without flying. So, Bear Cub. If Broodmoth and Bear Cub die at the same time, you know, triggers leave the battlefield triggers, look back in time, a Luminous Broodmoth was on the battlefield, so Bear Cub is going to come back with a flying counter. Cool. If Luminous Broodmoth somehow loses flying, it is a creature you control without flying. So if it dies, it's going to return itself with a flying counter. And so it'll probably have both flying and a flying counter. If a merged creature dies, and that creature didn't have flying, each card that was a part of that merged creature is returned to the battlefield, and they're going to get flying counters. Ooh. You got that? Ooh. So does good. That, does that give you, like, a little That, little that gives me some, some warm fuzzies. <laughs> yeah, the little hairs on the back of your neck that haven't been trimmed in two months because we can't go to the barbers. <laughs> they're standing up on end. So now... Uh, this triggers for tokens. You know, you got a, you got a little one-one elemental token. Doesn't have flying. It's gonna die. Uh, we're gonna go to return it to the. Oh, it ceased to exist. Oh no. Okay, so if I have a merged creature that's got a token top and a wolfakeet, whatever bottom, or what's, what's one of these other merged creatures? The uh, the archipelagor bottom. It's going to go to the graveyard. It's going to split into a token and to the other creature. The token is going to cease to exist the second uh, uh, state-based actions take care of that. But the the archipelagor that was under that token, oh, it's going to come back with a flying counter. This card is insane with mutate. Uh, it's it's pretty wild. Also, yeah. it is immortal, effectively, if your opponent controls an archetype of imagination. Oh, they may give it to cause it to lose flying. Well, it can't. It loses and can't have or gain flying, right? So, so everything that comes back. Now, that's actually interesting. If it can't gain flying, does that would that mean that the flying counter can't be put on it, or the flying counter gets put on it but doesn't do anything? That's an excellent question. Um, I have a guess. I don't like. I was looking when I was looking at this card for that note, and I. 
couldn't find anything, and maybe I'm just blind, but I couldn't find anything for what the information we have now that says either way. My guess is you put the counter on, and it just doesn't, like, give it that ability. But, because, like... Because, like, if if we if we kill Archetype and there's, like, an aura, I, I like comparing the counters to auras, and there's an aura yeah. conferring flying, uh, it will fly when the Archetype goes away. It's just, like, it's just blanketing saying you can't have this ability ever as long as I'm in play, right? Yeah. That would be my speculation. Um, archetype of Imagination. Uh, imagination reminds me of uh, Dreams. So, next card we want to talk about is uh, Lurus of the Dream Den. Uh, this is one whack whack. Uh, that's white black white black hybrid for legendary creature cat nightmare. <laughs> Look, I may, I may have thought of this because of whack mana and tween mana, which is the two bread green mana, and went like I gotta mana? fill out the rest of this. <laughs> tween mana. Tween mana. Tween, yeah. I have a feeling that like tween mana just sits in its room and watches TikTok videos, <laughs> and you can't get it to put its dishes away in the dishwasher. Uh, it depends on how dis well uh, <laughs> and well and well how behaved your tween mana is. Uh, always nurture your tween mana, but remember, teach it responsibility. Uh, so, Lords <laughs> of the Dream then is a legendary creature cat nightmare. Cat nightmare to three two. Uh, it has companion. Uh, its companion is specific. Its restriction is each permanent card in your starting deck has converted mana cost two or less. It has lifelink, and it says during each of your turns you may cast one permanent spell with converted mana cost two or less from your graveyard. Uh, so some things on this card. First, we talked about the permanent types earlier. We don't have to go back into that. I don't think you still have to pay costs and obey timing restrictions when casting a spell from graveyard. Again, if a spell if an ability doesn't say cast it as part of its resolution, uh, then it's just giving you permission to cast it, but you still have to do all of the normal stuff you would do when casting it. Uh, upside, you do get to cast it for alternative costs because of that, right? As well as additional and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So uh, if something else lets you cast a card from your graveyard, it doesn't take up the slot from Lurus, if that makes sense. So... Lura says you can cast something, uh, TMC two or less, uh, from your graveyard if some other effect lets you cast, uh, an artifact from your graveyard, right? Like, uh, Emery. Actually, it's a great example from standard. Emery, you tap it, target a, an artifact card in your graveyard, you can cast that this turn, right? That, even if it is a CMC two or less, uh, you get to basically say, I'm, I'm casting this for Emery, you still have your, your Lurus slot in the bank, right? See, I can still cast another permanent card from my graveyard with converted mana cost two or less. If you've already cast a card from Lurus, so say I had a Lurus in play, I cast a Ginger Brute out of my graveyard, uh, then I play another Lurus of the Dream Den from my deck, or, or from anywhere, right? And and I pick the new one, or if I blink the Lurus that's already in play, uh, that basically resets that ability, that bottom ability. So I get to cast another permanent spell with converted mana cost two or less from my graveyard, right? Yeah, that's, that should be noted that that works a little bit differently than cards that let you play an additional land. Correct. Uh, because cards that let you play an additional land have special rules that I think we have a card later that actually uh, goes into them oh, specifically. Yep, we, we have an additional land drop card later. So oh. we'll get into why that's different uh, for the card. That That's a great point, Brian. Uh, because you're right, that does work differently because... Additional land drops have a special rule for them specifically. Last note on this card is it says cast 
not play, so you can't play lands from your graveyard. A, an exception, I guess, being you can cast Zoetic Cavern as a morph from your graveyard, because all of that tracks with what it's saying you can do. But you can't play Zoetic Cavern as a land from your graveyard via the effect of Lurus. Uh, you can play it from your graveyard from, like, a, a Crucible of Worlds, but not from Lurus. So now we've got the Elemental Otter itself. Lutri the Spell Chaser. Alright, first off, art is amazing. Second off, this card's already been banned in Commander, right? 100%. Yeah, it's been banned okay. in Commander. As as banned completely or just banned as a companion? Oh, they don't make a distinction anymore. Yeah, no, it's just banned completely. So, right. Yep. So this oh, and thing Brawl. Says, it's also been banned from Brawl. Do, do people play... Don't at me. Uh, I play <laughs> Brawl people... on Arena, so yes, people play okay. Brawl. Unless I'm not a person. Okay. Right. Uh, Use your judgment. <laughs> we're, we're still we're still in the trial period here. Um, okay. I have to earn least... my right to be a person. What dystopian well, I mean, nightmare got, future like, is this? I've got thirty days to return you. Okay. Thirty days so, in the hole. So I might have lost the receipt, but it's on the credit card. Um, so this has companion. Uh, this is so this is for. Uh, one and then the blue two of the blue red hybrids for a three two elemental otter legendary creature companion each non-land card in your starting deck has a different name has flash and when lutri the spell chaser enters the battlefield if you cast it copy target instant or sorcery spell you control you may choose new targets for the copy so i am going to call out the the one little bit where it says like hey when it enters the battlefield if you cast it so no reanimation shenanigans, no blinking shenanigans. You gotta actually cast this thing the good old fashioned way. Okay. So by playing it off of mind's desire, the way God intended. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it can copy any target instant or sorcery you control. Now that does have to be uh, uh, on the sorcery spell on the stack. Obviously, mm -hmm. uh, it's not gonna copy cards in your hand. The copy is being created on the stack. It's not cast. Okay, so anything that triggers if you cast a spell isn't going to trigger. Also, it's going to resolve before the original spell does. The copy is going to have the same the same targets, because it says right here, it says you may choose new targets for the copy. So it's going to have the same targets as the spell you're copying unless you choose new ones. Your Spoilers, you're probably going to choose new ones. You may, uh, you may change any uh, number of the targets, including... All or none of them. You may not change the number of targets, mm -hmm. but you may choose any number of the targets. So if the spell has three targets, okay, you can shift around what those three targets are, but you can't... The number of the count shall be... Three. 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 Good reference. Yes. Let's see here. If the spell is a modal spell, the modes, got, the, the modes are going to be copied. Um... If there's any value of X, hey, we've been saying X is zero all day. This is the one time we get to say you're going to get to copy X. So whatever X was, it's going to be. The copying doesn't let you pay any alternate costs. If there is an additional cost that the spell had, it's going to considered paid. If it was paid on the, the OG spell, uh, if the additional cost was paid, the additional cost is considered paid for the copy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if you have... um uh, spells that divide damage. Let's see here. And when you say like, okay, I'm going to hit, I'm going to hit one thing for two damage, another thing for two damage, and another thing for one damage. 
you can shift those targets around, but you can't like redistribute and say like, okay, well, I got three targets. I'm going to leave it at three targets, but I'm going to do like three, one, one, uh, one, one, three. Right. You can't do that. You got to keep it as two, two, one, but you can shift that around. Right. And that's, that's all I got to say about the elemental otter other than I would like someone to do a, an altered art of this card with Emmett Otter from Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Mm. Well, the feeling is mutual. The next card we would like to discuss is Mutual Destruction. It's single black mana for a sorcery. Uh, it says, this spell has flash as long as you control a permanent with flash. It says, as an additional cost to cast this spell, sacrifice a creature, destroy target creature. So it's Bone Splinters, but it's got an additional line of text on it. Once you start to cast this spell with flash, it, at that point it's already too late for anyone to interfere and remove the permanent you control with flash to stop you from casting this at instant speed. Okay, and okay. then uh, just like with regular bone splinters, uh, you got to sacrifice a creature, right? Uh, you can't get around paying the additional cost. Interestingly, if you only have one creature with flash or one permanent with flash, and it's a creature, you can sacrifice that creature to this while casting it with flash and that's all legal that's if you remember your steps of casting a spell you're like okay i'm gonna put the spell on the stack all right gotta choose my targets uh you pay costs all the way down at the end we check for whether or not it's legal to cast the spell way before you pay those costs so we go yep you can cast this now uh and then it's on the stack already and the rules aren't going to go back and say ah wait a minute wait a minute you don't have a permanent with flash anymore at that point in time what? Yeah, it's pretty rad. The next cards <laughs> are the the Mythos Cycle. So the Mythos the Mythos Cycle is a series of instants and sorceries that all I say all they all have really like really really cool artwork by uh, by an artist named Seb. They're almost like cave drawings. Seb McKinnon is just nonstop bangers. Let me just read one of the cards real quick. And then I'll talk about generic notes of the card in general. Because if I start talking about the generic notes before you actually know what the card does, it's a little weird. So the Mythos Cycles, like the green one, Mythos of Brokos. It's <laughs> the most broken broccolis. Mythos. He's got little broccolis yep. on his back, and he's the Mythos of Broccoli. <laughs> okay, for two green green, uh, it's a sorcery that says, If a blue and a black was spent to cast this spell, search your library for a card put that card into your graveyard, then shuffle your library. Period. New paragraph, new sentence. Return up to two permanent cards from your graveyard to your hand. So what's important here is you get the second ability. Okay, the second ability is going to happen, regardless of, of what mana you paid to cast this spell. But this whole cycle is if the green one has a, like basically a rider or a pre-rider, if you pay blue and black, the, the enemy colors. The blue one has another rider that also cares about if you pay uh, green and green and red. Okay, so they're basically wedge spells mm -hmm. for the full effect. Copying the spell on the stack. Okay, so if I cast my Mythos of Brakos and I paid a blue, a black, a green, green, and then I copy my Mythos, okay? First off, that copy wasn't cast. No mana was spent to cast that spell. So you're not going to get that bonus. The other thing is you must actually spend the colored mana. I have to spend blue and black to get that rider. If I have some effect that says, oh, you can spend mana as though it was any color. Yeah, sure. 
but I didn't, you know, so I can tap my white and say like, oh yeah, this white one counts as blue and this white one counts as black, but they weren't actually blue and black. So you're not going to get that rider. Can't try to get the bonus when casting this uh, without paying the mana cost, because it also says, you know, if uh, uh, you get if the mana was spent to cast the spell, like if you have if you have something that gives this a cost reduction of two, you're not going to have the opportunity to pay the extra mana. And let's see here, cost reduction of two. What's this? Is, uh, what's this last point here? Cost reduction of. Two. So this is a little convoluted, but uh, we talked about uh, spending mana of any color or type doesn't count, except when it does. So in this particular case, so let's take Mythos of Brokos, right? Say you've got something that's reducing the cost, the generic cost, by two. So now it's only costing you green-green. Ordinarily, you wouldn't be able to pay the blue and the black, because you have to pay green-green, and you're not allowed to put extra mana into the spell just because you want to, right? However, if somebody, if an effect let you spend mana as if it were mana of any color you could spend blue for one green pip and black for the other green pip and then blue and black were spent to cast that spell and you will get the bonus even through the cost reduction okay yeah i wouldn't have read i wouldn't have got that point after reading that just that once <laughs> yeah sorry i i probably should have covered the last point because uh, i wrote it i, I... I read that and I was just like, okay, I'm going to start saying these words and I really hope they start making sense by the <laughs> nope. nope. Yeah, I didn't okay. know a good way to, to write that out in words. <laughs> okay. All right. So on these on these cards with Mythos of Brakos, it lets you, if you pay the blue-green, it lets you search your library for a card and then put that card into your graveyard then shuffle your library. That effect actually comes before, or that, that sentence comes before the line that says return up to two permanent cards from your graveyard to your hand. Because you do the effects of the spell in the order that they are written, you can, in fact, choose the card that you searched for that turn. So you get basically a tutor and an additional permanent card. Yeah. Or you get a permanent tutor, but... Right. It's real nice. Uh, Mythos of Iluna, this is the Jeskai one, or no, excuse me, the Teamer one, excuse me. It says, create a token that's a poppy of target permanents to blue-blue. If uh, red-green was spent to cast a spell, instead create a token that's a copy of that permanent, except the token has when this permanent enters the battlefield. If it's a creature, it fights up to one target creature you don't control. So you're copying a permanent. It cares about if it's a creature after it's made the copy. All right, cool. Uh, everything that applies with copy effects uh, applies to this. There's a lot of interesting things that happen as a result of copying. Remember, copying does copy mutations now uh, for things that care about that. Note that the... The additional rider on this one, uh, if you pay the red-green, that ability, because it says it's a copy of that permanent except it has this stuff, that's part of the copy effect, okay? It would be templated differently if it weren't. It would say if it was spent, uh, that permanent gains this ability, right? And then it would apply in the ability length. Uh, because it says except the token has, that's part of the copy effect, and so then will be copyable later on that that trigger will be copyable later on by other copy effects i think i've said the word copy so much it has lost all meaning yeah it does start to <laughs> okay mythos of nethroi tuna black for an instant destroy target non-land permanent if it's a creature or if green white was spent to cast the spell wait okay i'm, I'm feigning confusion here Wait a second. Doesn't this just say it destroys the the creature, and then if I spend a white and a green, it destroys the creature? Oh. No, it actually says destroy target non-land permanent if it's a creature, or 
if white and green was spent to cast a spell. So you can target anything. You can just you can target you can target an enchantment. You can target a planeswalker. You can target uh, an artifact, enchantment, bear cub, aura. Uh, well, actually, that would be uh, because I threw bear cub in there. It would it would destroy that. But the the general point is, I can target anything with this spell. That's not a. It's land. not going to. It's only or, yeah, non land. So I can target anything that's not a land, but it's only going to destroy it if it's a creature. Unless I pay green and a white, and then it's just going to destroy whatever non-land permanent I I, I picked. Mm-hmm. So if you're not going to pay the white green, it it either destroys a creature or just targets something in case you've got some sort of spell or ability that that cares about something just being targeted. And that's all. That's it. Yep, it's a good spell. It's it's like fatal push. Uh, people remember that came out. Uh, you can target any creature with fatal push, right? But it won't. It, it won't do anything on resolution to creatures that are CMC 5 or greater, and it will only kill things of fourth CMC 4 or 3 if Revolt is true, right? It's different from... So it's not a targeting restriction, right? Next Mythos in the cycle. Uh, a couple, few more notes on this one. Mythos of Snapdax. What a good name. Two white-white sorcery. Uh, it says each player chooses an artifact, a creature, an enchantment, and a planeswalker from among the non-land permanents they control, then sacrifices the rest. If black-red was spent to cast a spell, you choose the permanents for each player instead. So that means instead of those players choosing which of those permanents. This matters because you may choose a permanent that qualifies for multiples of those types uh, multiple times. So if uh, one of my opponents controls a ginger brute right and a bunch of other artifacts and a bunch of other creatures i can choose if i paid the red black i can choose their ginger brute for an artifact and i can choose their ginger brute for a creature and that's totally legal you still have to make legal choices if choosing for another player but a choice like that is legal as long as it qualifies as one of the types you can keep pointing at that thing for as many types as it qualifies for if you like and choices go in active player, non-active player order, and we're going to choose all of the stuff for each individual player and then move to the next player. So we're going to choose the active player, chooses their artifact, creature, enchantment, planeswalker, and then next, and then next, and then next. This is true even if you get to make the choices. You go, okay, I'm going to choose for active player, I'm going to choose for the next one, I'm going to choose for the next one, I'm going to choose for me, if it's a multiplayer game, that kind of thing. So... Last thing, it says non-land permanents can't choose lands. They won't sack any lands. That's it. Okay. Last one in the cycle is Mythos of Vadrock. For two red red, it's a sorcery. Mythos of Vadrock deals five damage divided as you choose amongst any number of target creatures and or planeswalkers. If white and blue was spent to cast this spell until your next turn, those permanents can't attack or block, and their activated abilities can't be activated. All right. So, the only real thing of note here is the damage division happens when you talk about the steps that cast a spell, casting a spell. The damage uh, after you declare your target, after you choose your modes, uh, after you announce your targets. So in here you would say, I'm going to choose any number of targets. I announce how much damage is going to be, how I'm going to assign this five damage. So I can choose up to five targets and put one damage each, or I can do one da- or one target and do five damage on it. What I can't do is say, oh, it says any number of target creatures. 
I'm going to target all 30 of your creatures and do one damage here, one damage here, and a whole bunch of zeros. I just want to target a bunch of your stuff. Can't do that. When you do that sort of division, you have to assign at least one of the thing. In this case, that thing is damage. One of the thing to each of the targets. So if I have a Furnace of Wrath, uh, I can target 10 things, right? Because I'm going to deal 10 damage, so I can... No, no, because Furnace of Wrath... No, because Furnace of Wrath... What happened to Yes Ending, Brian? Well, see, (laughs) you were doing no buts so much (laughs) that I decided that I was going to do some some no buts. That's fair. So, So in this particular case, Furnace of Wrath doubles the damage, okay? It doesn't actually change the text of the card to say 10 damage divided any way you want, but only you have to do multiples of two. Okay. So in Furnace of Wrath's case, which which doubles all the damage, I would still assign one to each of the five targets, and then the one would get doubled to two. Or I could do five damage to one target, and it would get doubled to 10. But I wouldn't get to say do one point of damage to 10 creatures. That's not the way. Okay. You are right. This is not the way. This is not the way. Uh, speaking of the way, we're going to talk about an old way, actually an ancient way. I'm very excited. I'm happy I get to be the one to talk about this card. Narset is one of my favorite Planeswalkers of all time, just as a character uh, and like particularly as a, as a Jeskai card. And I'm really happy to see her back in the full-blown Jeskai colors. Uh, so we're going to talk about Narset of the Ancient Way. She is one and then Jeskai mana, so blue, red, white, for a legendary planeswalker, Narset, for starting loyalty. Uh, she has a plus one, says you gain two life. Add blue, red, or white. Spend this mana only to cast a non-creature spell. Uh, then she has a minus two, says draw a card, then you may discard a card. When you discard a non-land card this way, Narset of the Ancient Way deals damage equal to that card's converted mana cost to target creature or planeswalker. And then a minus six, uh, so her ultimate is you get an emblem with, whenever you cast a non-creature spell, this emblem deals two damage to any target. Okay, spicy card. Uh, So first, right off the bat, that first ability, gain two life, add blue, red, or white. Uh, Loyalty abilities of a Planeswalker cannot be mana abilities. Uh, They're explicitly disqualified in the rules from, from being mana abilities. So this ability uses the stack. And therefore, your opponent can respond before you get the mana. Okay? Um, Second, the second ability has a reflexive trigger in it. We talked about reflexive triggers earlier. So she says, draw a card, then you may discard a card. And it says, when you discard a non-land card this way afterward. Okay? That's the reflexive trigger. Uh, This only has a target when you choose to discard a non-land card. So you're always going to draw a card. You don't have to discard a card. If you don't discard a card at all, the reflexive trigger won't happen because it didn't trigger. Okay, you can discard a land, but that also will not trigger the reflexive trigger because you didn't discard a non-land card. When you discard a non-land card from her ability, that is when you get the reflexive trigger, and that's when you'll declare the target for the ability that deals damage equal to the converted mana cost of that card. Uh, lastly, for her emblem, uh, emblems are colorless. Uh, which matters for the last ability. So that damage, that damage source and that targeting source is from a colorless source. So protection from blue, red, white will not actually stop uh, this emblem from targeting or damaging those permanents. All right. 
the next card that we're going to talk about is Nethroi, Apex of Death. But before we do, I just want to mention that there is the card right before this card alphabetically in this set is called Necropanther. <laughs> I don't have any rules comments on it. It's just Necropanther. Okay, so back to Netheroy, Apex of Death. For two white, black, green, it is a legendary creature, Cat Nightmare Beast. Isn't that redundant? Um, which part? Cat Nightmare Beast? No. Like, you're not going to get, I'm sorry, you're, you're not going to get me to say cats are nightmares. You could be a nightmare and not be a cat. Right. I don't think you can be a cat and not be a nightmare beast. Anyway, it has mutate for four, then a green-white hybrid and black-black. It has it is a five five creature with death touch life link and whenever this creature mutates return any number of target creature cards with total power ten or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. Okay, this can be any any combination of the creatures provided their total power is ten or less. So if you have a bunch of the ornithopters that cost zero, if you have a bunch of things that cost X because X is zero, you can bring all of those back. Well, that have Great, X they don't count. or star or. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're going to use the power of the creature in the graveyard for calculations. So if it's got a, you know, most cards that you look at are going to have like 4-4 four, or 2-2, two, two, but occasionally you might have a creature that, that has a 0-0 zero, zero and comes into play with 8 plus 1 plus 1 counters like Seki Seasons Guide from Kamigawa, because that's the first card I thought of for some reason. <laughs> Now, here's something interesting. So CDAs are checked wherever wherever they are. So, like, Termagoyf has a characteristic-defining ability, and that ability is defining its power and toughness in the graveyard. When this trigger is put on the stack, and you say, I'm going to target that, you know, this creature, this creature, this creature, and this Termagoyf, and then something happens, like a sorcery goes to the grave, and, and the value is exactly 10. And then a sorcery goes to the graveyard where a sorcery wasn't already in the graveyard. Tarmogoy's power goes up by one. Now the total amount of power is 11. When this thing goes to resolve, it's not going to happen. Because the target, creature cards with total power 10 or less from your graveyard, that's the target clause. So you've now just made your targets illegal, and you ain't getting nothing back. Now that is a nightmare beast. That is a cat. That is a horror. Definitely. Uh, it basically, this is this is what it is. You've got this nice little glass of water on your desk, and the cat just came up and just knocked oh, it off. The cat just wanted to find out what's happened. Nah, the cat, no. The cat knows. Okay. So, next up, we've got, I don't have a better segue, uh, we have got Obosh the Prey Piercer. Great name. This is three... Bled, bled, uh, so black, red, black, red hybrid. You're just making these up. These no, are not real words. I have, I have a list of these uh, designed to make sure that they're it's... all unique and there's no ambiguity. So you know what you're talking about because none of the other ones would fit that nomenclature. Right, but nobody else knows. <laughs> what is this? That's Three what... bled, bled. It's, look, it's faster to say I'm trying to get to catch on. I may be trying to make fetch happen. So, <laughs> the type line on Obosh is Legendary Creature Hellion Horror. Uh, Obosh is a 3-5. And then this is a companion card. Uh, we don't really talk about the companion thing. It says your sharding deck contains only cards with odd converted mana costs and land cards. That lets you have lands in your deck because, according to the rules of the game, the lands are even because reasons. And then it has text that we care about, which says if a source you control with an odd converted mana cost 
would deal damage to a permanent or player, it deals double that damage to that permanent or player instead. How does this work with trample slash excess damage clauses that we now have? Uh, which we we talked about this earlier. We, we sort of set ourselves up for this. You double afterward. So you, you're going to figure out excess damage. You're going to figure out how the damage is going to work with the base number on the card. And then when the damage is dealt, that's when you're going to be applying this replacement effect that's going to double that damage. Okay? So... Uh, this is also true for effects like uh, Throbin, since I'm talking about it already, that add 2 to that damage. You you calculate XX damage with the number that you have, then you go extra. So if I'm casting Flame Spill on Brian's Bear Cub, right, uh, 4 damage, and I've got Obosh in play, right, so I'm casting Flame Spill on his Bear Cub. I have to say 2 damage to the Bear Cub and 2 damage to Brian, because the Bear Cub has 2 toughness. That's what would be lethal damage. And then Obosh is going to come over and say, well, why won't, why don't we make that four and four? Because Flame Spill is an odd converted mana cost spell. It's two and a red. Uh, so it deals four to the Bear Cub and four to, to Brian. Now, what if I had Obosh and Throbin Thane of Redfell in play? So I've got one that's doubling and one that's trying to add two. Uh, what order do they apply? Well, the controller of the affected object or the affected player is the person who gets to choose what order two competing replacement effects apply. So in this case, Brian's going to get to choose how badly this particular combo is going to hurt him, uh, not me. And so he's probably going to choose what's mathematically optimal for him. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then we already talked about above for the mythos of Va Valak, Vakdu, uh, Shabernigdo, something like that. The red one. That when you're dividing damage, you're going to apply the doubling afterwards. It's the same principle. Uh, you do with the damage that's printed on the card. Uh, then you apply the doubling. You don't get to apply the doubling to determine what your division's going to look like. Do you know that uh, the Pre-Piercer has a clothing line? It does? Tell me more. Yeah. Oshkosh Obosh. Uh, they sell overalls for little kids. I had some Oshkosh Pagosh when I was young. I walked right into that one. Okay. <laughs> so the next card is Offspring's Revenge. It's for two red, black. Oh, I would say two red, white, black. It's an enchantment. At the beginning of combat on your turn, exile target red, white, or black creature card from your graveyard. Create a token that's a copy of that card, except it's 1-1. One, one. It gains haste until your next turn. So the token is a copy of what is printed on the card in the graveyard and nothing else, except it's a 1-1, one, one, okay? If you if you had a Tarmogoyf in the graveyard, the 1-1 one, one is actually part of the copy effect, so the uh, the power and toughness setting effect, the, the, the power and toughness uh, characteristic defining ability, actually doesn't get copied. Any enter the battlefield triggers or replacement effects work, it's a copy of the card. Uh, you didn't cast it, though. Also... Haste, where it says it gains haste until the end of turn, that's not part of the copy effect. It's separate uh, and has a duration. Eh. I guess I guess the, there's a question here that says like why I guess why it has a has a duration. Well, it's got a duration. It's got haste, so it can attack. But then after the end of the turn, it doesn't matter. Like like it creates a memory issue where you have to remember that it has haste. Like how often is that going to be relevant? Well, if you decide so, not to attack with it. Well, if you decide not to attack with it, then you didn't attack with it. Right. But okay, so you do want to like if it's got a tap ability, you don't want to save it for the for the next turn. But 
you know, you won't you won't be able to save it because once it loses it loses haste, then it'll still be summoning sick. But it says until your next turn, so you actually Oh, it does say yeah, until your next until your turn. Next so you turn. would have it. So you can activate okay. the activated the tap ability on your opponent's turn. Uh, it also means you can block Ginger Brute with it if that's if that's your speed. So I was actually this this is an important thing. Read the read the card. I thought it knew what it. I maybe even said it gains haste until your next turn. But what I read was it gains haste until end of turn. Yep. So it's an important thing. Slow down. Read the cards. And that is all I gotta say about Offspring's Revenge. And now <sighs> is the card you have been it waiting for. It is time for. for your main event. <laughs> Oh, jeez. Already in the ring, weighing in at one generic mana. It's a legendary artifact with oh. not a lot of lines of rules text, but an awful lot to say. You're hyping this thing the up. The Ozolith! By God, I think that's the Ozolith's music. Uh, yeah. So, this card is interesting. Uh, so, legendary <laughs> artifact for one generic mana, uh, named the Ozolith, has two abilities. One says, whenever a creature you control leaves the battlefield, comma, if it had counters on it, comma, put those counters on the Ozolith. Hmm. Comma, if something, comma, wonder what that's about. Uh, then it has another ability that says, at the beginning of combat on your turn, comma, if the Ozolith has counters on it, comma, you may remove all counters from the Ozolith, onto or may move all counters from the ozolith onto target creature actually it doesn't seem all that bad right if i've got something that's dying and it has counters or if it's getting bounced to my hand exiled it has counters okay the ozolith gets those counters now cool and then at the beginning of my combat if i've got counters on ozolith i can target a thing and move the counters onto that thing it, you wouldn't be so excited about this card if it was just that vanilla, if it was that simple. So what you, what you got? <laughs> All right. So first off, on that first ability, it doesn't move the counters from the card that's leaving the battlefield to the Ozolith. Uh, that's very important. It doesn't say take the counters from there, put them on, and move them to the Ozolith. It says if it had counters, put them on the Ozolith. And uh, according to the release notes, what this actually means is you're going to count the number of different counters on that thing and you're going to put that many of all of, of each of those counters so if it had three flying counters and two plus one plus one counters you're going to put three flying counters and two plus one plus one counters on the ozolith uh this matters because if you for example control multiple ozoliths like you had a mirror gallery in place so you can have multiple ozoliths because you're ignoring the legend rule you'll put counters on each of them Right? So you'll have three flying counters on each of them and two plus one plus one counters on each of your Ozoliths. And leaves the battlefield triggers that care about the number of counters on a creature uh, will see and use all the counters it had in their, in their calculation and whatever they're going to do. So we're not moving it from them. So things like modular still work, right? It goes, okay, I left, I've got, I had two plus one plus one counters. I get to put these on a target artifact creature you control. The Ozolith is still also going to get two plus one plus one counters. So that's that's an important distinction. It yeah. doesn't move them. It basically like copies them. It takes a picture and it puts that picture on top of it when when that so thing like leaves. persist persist and undying. You're not going to be able to go like oh well it didn't have the counter on it so I get the trigger again right no right 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 exactly right uh, very important for persist and undying for those types of abilities still had them 
Uh, it's just that Ozolith is then getting them kind, getting a copy of them on the way out. Keyword counters give the Ozolith those keywords. So you can have the Ozolith have flying, which, unless it's a creature, doesn't do anything. You can also have the Ozolith get a hexproof counter. That does give the Ozolith hexproof, because it can have hexproof, and that, that does mean something. An artifact can have hexproof, so that'll do a thing, right? Uh, it can okay. technically have lifelink in case it gains an ability to tap for damage or whatever. It can technically have death touch, right? So it'll have those abilities. They won't always mean something. And then power and toughness modifying counters obviously will only do something to the Ozolith if the Ozolith becomes a creature. It doesn't specify certain types of counters are disqualified. So it could hypothetically get loyalty counters, right? If I've animated a Sarkin or a Gideon and they leave the battlefield while they're creatures, they had loyal some number of loyalty counters on them. Ozolith sees a creature leaving with counters, goes, I'm going to put those loyalty counters on me. I'm going to put that number of loyalty counters on me. Any type of counter? Yeah. If, if it had counters on it, put those counters on the Ozolith. Uh, so if you've animated your land with the, uh, what are the ones from Obsidian Fireheart called again? The Blaze counters? Well, I was just, I was just thinking counters? if I, if I animate my coral reef and it dies, I will be able to put polyp counters on my Ozolith. Yeah. That's, it had a counter on it, didn't it? It was a creature. Yeah. Yeah. Just saying. Yep. Polyp counters. Yep. Just saying. Okay. If in the case where there's loyalty counters on the Ozolith, uh, yeah, you can put those onto a creature, right? Uh, they just won't do anything uh, from the second triggered ability I'm talking about. But if you animate another Planeswalker into a creature, and then at the beginning of combat, you can have the Ozolith put the loyalty counters it's storing onto that Planeswalker, and it will in fact just up the number of loyalty counters on that Planeswalker. So enjoy that. You choose targets for that second ability, the one that puts the counters onto the creature. Uh, you choose it when the trigger goes on the stack, because it's all one one line. At the beginning, if you may, onto target. It's all one thing, not a reflexive trigger, so you choose it when it goes onto the stack, but you won't choose whether or not you move the counters off the Ozolith until the trigger resolves. So your opponent can't get you by going, okay, you're targeting that, I'm going to kill it, and now all your counters go away. You don't make the choice of whether or not you're going to move them until that ability resolves. I made a little cute noise at the if statements earlier. Uh, those who have been doing this for a little while will recognize those are what we call intervening if clauses in these triggers. That means we're going to check the conditions before when the trigger goes on the stack and also when it resolves to determine if we're going to do anything about it. I can't think of anything off the top of my head that would stop the first one. Uh, in between, I'm happy to learn if somebody's got a cool little corner case thing, go ahead and message me with it. But I can't think of a way to have the trigger go on the stack and then also not have counters go on to this. Like remove the if it had counters on it clause somehow to negate the first intervening if. Uh, the second one, obviously, hmm. um, if the Ozolith gets counters removed from it, then the ability will look on resolution and go, oh, there's no counters to move. And effectively, it does your work for you and says, well, you can't do anything because the Ozolus doesn't have counters on it. Well, the next bit is a little bit complicated, so I'm going to go slow. Because of how plus one, plus one, and minus one, minus one counters get removed when they're on the same permanent by the rules, a creature that dies while having both will have left the battlefield with all of those counters. So if I've got a zero, zero with two plus one, plus one, and two minus one, minus one counters on it, and... 
it will die due to state-based actions, it will have died and will look back to just before it died to look at the this trigger condition and we'll see it had two plus one plus one counters, it had two minus one minus one counters. So the Ozolith will get two plus one plus one counters and two minus one minus one counters. But then the next time state-based actions check, state-based actions will go, we've got a permanent with plus one plus one and minus one minus one counters on it, so uh, let's do the matter-antimatter thing and annihilate them until only one type remains at a one-for-one one rate. This really only matters for some corner cases like if you've animated your Ozolith into a creature and you've got to harden scales, then those two plus one plus ones and two minus one minus ones will become three plus one plus ones and two minus one minus ones, which then means it nets a, a plus one plus one counter where it wouldn't have before. This card is right. bananas. I'm almost done. <laughs> <laughs> so the last trigger is all or nothing. You cannot choose to move only some of the counters on the Ozolith onto the targeted creature and not others. It doesn't say you may move any number of those counters. It says you may move all counters from the Ozolith. So it's either going to be you say, yep, I'm going to move every single counter that's on here over to that creature, or none of them. That's it. Those are your only choices. Now, because the last ability does move counters, unlike the first ability, which effectively photographs and, and copies counters, um, Destroying the Ozolith before its second triggered ability resolves means no counters will get placed on the targeted creature, right? Because ability goes to resolve, there is no Ozolith with counters on it. So we're done here. And we're done here with that card. Uh, how do you, what, what do you think? <laughs> of, of Ozolith? Yeah. I, I, okay, so my initial, my initial reaction to when I first saw it was, oh, that's cute. Didn't didn't really read it. Didn't really think about it. I was just kind of like, oh, okay, you know, might be cool, like moving things around, saving saving counters along the line. And then a little bit later, you were talking about that awesome one mana artifact. And I'm like, what one mana <laughs> artifact? And you're like, this one. And you showed it to me, and I was just like, this only costs one. <laughs> oh, so this is it's great. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's a counter battery where you can suddenly just you know. Oh no! Something something died with three plus one plus one counters on it, and then just move those plus one counters to something else. I am curious if this is gonna like go into modern hardened scales. I think it could. Uh, the fact that you get to store them and use them later, and it's so low opportunity cost to play it. Plus, like it, it works with all of the affinity type effects. Obviously, they don't have Mox Opal anymore, but it's going into a bajillion EDH decks. Oh, for sure. Yeah, a bajillion. Okay, uh, so I don't have to do any more cards for the rest of these release notes, right? Uh, okay, I mean, if you want, I, I'll, I'll burn through. No, no, okay, no, that's I'll fine. I'll, I'll tear through the next two real quick. I'll, I'll be fine. Okay, all right. Primal Empathy. One green blue is an enchantment at the beginning of your upkeep. Draw a card if you control a creature with the greatest power amongst creatures on the battlefield. Otherwise, put a plus one, plus one counter on a creature you control. There is no target for this ability. Okay, so you're going to choose uh, what gets a counter on resolution. So if your creatures are not as powerful as, as the creatures on the other side, you're going to get a plus one, plus one counter, and you don't got to pick until this ability resolves. The other thing is if uh, Jacob has a 5-5 five, five, and I have a 5-5 five, five, and there's no 6-6 six, six or 7 or 7 or anything like that, I have a creature that has the greatest power amongst creatures on the battlefield. So I'm going to get to draw a card. Now, if I have lots of 5-5s, five, I don't get to draw multiple cards. I just get to draw one card. And then 
if I don't have any creatures. Um, my opponent might have empathy for me, but primal empathy won't, mm. and I get no trigger. That's all I gotta say about that. Uh, I'm very proud of you for getting through that. Uh, right. Next, it's pretty quick. Next card up in the set is uh, that we wish to talk about is called Proud Wild Bonder. Uh, this is two gred gred, uh, black or green red green red hybrid mana for a creature human You're warrior four three with trample. Uh, and it says creatures you control with trample have you may have this creature assign its combat damage as though it weren't blocked. So the um, thorn elemental, I think the seven, seven that, that does the yes. same thing that, that clause. Um, so a couple of things on this card, uh, it, it affects itself as long as it has trample because it is a creature you control with trample. It doesn't say other, so it counts for itself. Um, you don't need to assign lethal damage if you're doing this. Uh, so, you know, that's that's easy. So if, if somebody blocks my Proud Wild Bonder, I can go, oh, I'm just going to do 40 you instead of dealing with whatever your creature's toughness is. However, if you choose to assign damage as though it weren't blocked, you can't assign any damage to any blocking creatures. So you either have to obey the rules of combat damage normally and, and assign lethal damage to blocking creatures before assigning to the player, or you have to say dealing it all to the player as if these creatures weren't blocked. You don't get to pick and choose and say, well, I'm going to, if I'm being blocked by three one ones, I don't get to say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to kill two of these one ones, uh, but then punch the other two damage through to you. Uh, you have to either do all four with Proud Wild Bonder to, to them or kill all three one ones and trample through at most with one damage. Uh, so you, it's an either or proposition. So the next card, it's Riley, really? Riel? Really? Really? I would say Riel. Really? Exactly. <laughs> uh, it's for one blue and a red, legendary creature, human wizard, zero three. Really, the Everwise gets plus one, plus zero for each instant and sorcery card in your graveyard. And whenever you discard one or more cards for the first time each turn, draw that many cards. Okay. Power boost. This is not a characteristic defining ability. Power boost only functions on the battlefield. It's zero three everywhere else. Her trigger, uh, the timing on discarding, if I have to discard a card as part of paying the additional cost to cast or activate a spell, then what's going to happen is is I cast the spell, I discard the card, the, the triggered triggering event happens. Then the next time a player would get priority, it goes on the stack. So it's actually going to resolve, this ability is going to resolve before... The, the spell that actually caused me to discard the card is the additional cost. The other thing is this is when you discard one or more cards for the first time each turn. So if I, for whatever reason I have to discard four cards at once, I'm going to draw that many cards. So I'm going to draw four cards. And so now here's here's kind of a funny thing here. If I have eight cards, okay, and I discard during the cleanup. Let's see here. I discard during the cleanup. This is going to trigger... I'm going to draw a card, and players are going to get priority, okay? Then, because players got priority during the cleanup, I have to discard again. There's going to be another cleanup, which means I have to discard again, because I had eight cards, I discarded down to seven, drew a card. It's not a May ability. That's actually what I was looking at when I was kind of stuttering. I was like, what? How's this? Um, the reason it breaks out of the loop is because it says... For the first time. For the first time each each, each turn. Each turn. Right. So... So I had eight cards. I discarded down to seven. I had to draw a card back up to eight. 
then because there was a trigger that did that made me draw up to eight, there's another cleanup, which means I discard down to seven. And the ability doesn't doesn't trigger. But that's just a weird thing. Okay, sure, fine, whatever. <laughs> oh, sure. can I talk about the next? Yes, card? absolutely. I got to I got to gush about my pet cards. You can talk about this one. This isn't this isn't really a pet card. This is just it's Shark Typhoon. It's Sharknado. It's Sharknado. Okay, so Shark Typhoon. It's five and a blue for an enchantment. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, create an XX blue shark creature token with flying, where X is that spell's converted mana cost. And it's got cycling of X1 and a blue and says, when you cycle Shark Typhoon, create an XX blue shark creature token with flying. This is... Okay. It's Sharknado. All right. Um, oh, I like your comments. Like, yo. <laughs> yep. um, oh, this, this triggers off of any non-creature spell, not just instance and sorcery. So your artifacts are going to Sharknado it up. Your planeswalkers are going to Sharknado it up. Your auras are going to Sharknado it up. You cast a second Shark Typhoon, and it's going to, that's like peak Sharknado. It makes me deliriously oh. happy that casting Ugin the Spirit Dragon will come with an an 8-8 eight, eight blue flying shark. <laughs> hey, you know, sky's the limit here, literally, because the typhoon reaches up to the sky. So the values the values of X are whatever they are on the stack. So if you cast a fireball for 10, okay, where that X is 10, then the X for shark typhoon is going to be 11, right? Mm-hmm. Because Fireball is X plus red. So if X is 10 plus the red, that's 11. So Shark Typhoon will see 11. Cool. Okay. The cycling, if you really, really, really want to cycle for for just the one in a blue, because it says X, one in a blue is cycling. If you really, really, really just want to cycle for one in a blue, X is zero. When you cycle, you're going to create a zero, zero blue flying shark creature token. Hope you got some way to keep it around. Or maybe you care about just a creature entering the battlefield or whatever, but you're going to get a 0-0 shark with flying. <laughs> it's going to immediately wolf. Yep. Yeah, it's got to be big in order to like not succumb to the pull of gravity or something. I don't know. Right. Well, I mean, the bigger it is, the more it can flap its fins to keep it airborne. Obviously. That's just physics. Obviously. Right? Yeah, obviously. <laughs> obviously. Birds, birds fly because they're above the pull of gravity. Uh, which... Right. If, I mean, the higher they get, the the further they can fly. That's how planes work. Yeah, exactly. Too. They're so far away from the Earth that gravity doesn't work anymore. Anyway. Right. <laughs> That's why people are lighter on the 20th floor of a building than on the second. Yeah. That is somewhat true. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> not not to get all physics, but... Uh... So Snapdax, Apex of the Hunt, is also in this set. Uh, this is one... Red, white, black, so Mardu mana for a legendary creature, Dinosaur Cat Nightmare. Uh, so it's a dinosaur and a cat, and yeah, that does sound that sounds like a nightmare. I'll agree with you on that one. The only thing we're going to talk about on this card, it's a, it's a 3-5, it's got double strike, it has mutate for two black-red hybrid, white-white. And it says whenever this creature mutates, it deals four damage to target creature or planeswalker an opponent controls, and you gain four life. Uh, only thing we really wanted to talk about here is if your opponent controls no creatures or planeswalkers, this trigger won't happen, right? It'll it'll trigger and it'll like try to go on the stack and be like, okay, what's what uh, what am I targeting? There's no legal target, so the trigger gets removed from the stack immediately. 
So you won't gain the four life, notably. Next card up, Solid Footing. Uh, this is an enchantment aura for one white. It's got flash, enchant creature, and enchanted creature gets plus one, plus one. Okay. As long... This is weird. As long as enchanted creature has vigilance, which this card doesn't give. Okay. As long as enchanted creature has vigilance, it assigns combat damage equal to its toughness rather than its power. So it deals butt damage. <laughs> okay. What's important is the last ability is constantly checking. So it's like, does it have vigilance? Does it have vigilance? Does it have vigilance? Does it have vigilance? Okay, it does. Okay, I need to do butt damage. <laughs> and that's that's it. So when it gets time to do butt damage, if it's got vigilance, or if it if it's time to deal damage, combat damage, because it got vigilance, if, if it does, it immediately flips around and slams you with its butt. Uh-huh. It's true. That's non-technical. That's non-technical explanation of what it does, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I got you. I grok you. Uh, it was a very creative explanation. And the next card, uh, we alluded to this earlier, cards that uh, deal with playing additional lands. This card is Song of Creation. It's one green, blue, red, so one in teamer mana, for an enchantment. Uh, it says, you may play an additional land on each of your turns. Uh, new new line, whenever you cast a spell, draw two cards. And then, last line, at the beginning of your end step, discard your hand. Womp womp. So, when you go to play a land, we compare the number of lands you've already played to the amount of lands you currently can play, according to all effects present at the time. Uh, so, if you can play more lands than you have played, then you can play a land. So if you've got two Songs of Creation and one Dryad of the Elysian Grove, which was from Theros Beyond Death, it's the 2-4 that lets you play an additional land. You could play up to four lands in, in a turn. Uh, one for your normal land drop, one for each Song of Creation, one for the Dryad. If you play three lands, then you lose uh, either the Dryad or one of the Songs of Creation before you play another land, so you go to combat and then you're in second main. You can't play the fourth land anymore, because the game looks and goes, you've played three lands, you have your regular land drop, and two effects that let you play an additional, that adds up to three, you can't play anymore. Uh, so this works differently, as we alluded to earlier, than uh, Lurus, the cat that let you cast cheap spells, cheap permanent spells from your graveyard, where you could basically reset it for each instance of Lurus or for other things that let you cast spells from the graveyard in and sort of dip into it. It sort of stores itself. These literally just always say, how many lands can you play? How many lands have you played? If that if that number is of lands that you've played is less than the number of lands you can, then you can keep playing lands. Last thing on this card is for the middle triggered ability. Uh, it has to be in play to trigger, right? Uh, and it's the same thing as any other when you cast trigger. You cast a spell, it's going to go on the stack above that spell. Players are going to get priority both between before this trigger resolves and after this trigger resolves, but before the spell that you cast that made the trigger happen. Next card is Stormwild Caprador. I don't know what a Caprador is. It's a is, bird goat. It seems like it's a bird goat. <laughs> yep. All right. It's a two and a white for a one three bird goat. <laughs> Um, Everything's a Pokemon. Flying. <laughs> yep. This this set just they just like uh, elemental otter, dragon, dinosaur, cat, nightmare. They just mixing mixing. There's like probably like frog, goat, 
mutant or something. Anyway, uh, it's 1-3 flyer. If non-combat damage would be dealt to Stormwild Capridor, prevent that damage. Put a plus one, plus one counter on Stormwild Capridor for each one damage prevented this way. Okay, so one thing to note is, so the damage has to be prevented. So if I'm trying to do five damage to uh, to Capridor via a spell, I'm going to prevent all five of that damage. I'm going to get five plus one, plus one counters. However, if something prevents uh, or, or, or keeps damage from being prevented, like Stomp from... Uh, the adventure side of Bone Crusher Giant says damage can't be prevented this way. Well, if I can't prevent the damage, my Storm Wild, Storm Wild Capridor is taking five and it's not going to get any plus one, plus one counters because the number of plus one, plus one counters is dependent on the damage being prevented. Okay, this is not a trigger. This is a replacement effect. So the counters are going to happen when the damage is dealt simultaneously and the counters get applied or the damage gets prevented and turned into counters, and then we're going to check state-based actions. Okay, so it's got it's got counters on it. So uh, it's also non-combat damage. So it's uh, that's probably not going to come up a whole whole lot. Now, if I have multiple replacement effects, multiple things are trying to prevent damage to Stormwild Capridor, I get to choose, or me, the controller of Stormwild Capridor. Now you got an example here. Yeah. So Dovin, okay, why don't you read that instead of me trying to figure? Yeah, it out. Yeah, yeah. So, so planeswalker from War of the Spark, Dovin Hand of Control can minus one to, uh, it, it prevents damage from a thing. I don't remember the exact text. One second here. It says, until your next turn, prevent all damage that will be dealt to and dealt by target permanent and opponent controls. Okay, so that's a prevention effect, and then this is also a prevention effect, right? It says if non-combat damage would be dealt. So then. Opponent did Dovin Hand of Control on my Capridor. I cast Storm's Wrath, which deals four damage to all creatures and planeswalkers. So I, as the controller of Stormwild Capridor, get to choose which prevention effect uh, prevent, uh, applies first for preventing the four damage to Capridor. I can either choose Capridor's own ability, which will give it four counters, or Dovin's ability, which gives me none, no counters. Um, either way, the damage being prevented means the second ability no longer applies because there's no longer damage to prevent. Does that make sense? Uh, yep, sure does. Excellent. Okay, what next? So next up, we've got a nest. It's a titan's nest, which when I saw this card, I, I'm a big fan of Eldrazi. Uh, and when I saw this card spoiled and with the text that's on it and the, the word titan, I got really excited. There's no Eldrazi in this set, but uh, I get, we're returning to Zendikar. Who knows? But this is uh, one... Black, green, blue for an enchantment. Uh, it says, at the beginning of your upkeep, look at the top card of your library. You may put that card into your graveyard. And then it says, exile a card from your graveyard, colon, so it's an activated ability. Add colorless. Spend this mana only to cast a colored spell without X in its mana cost. So, interesting. So, if you go and look at the top card of your library... And you choose not to put it into your graveyard, obviously, it's going to still be on the top of your library. Uh, so when you get to your draw step, assuming nothing else happened, you'll end up drawing that card. So it gives you kind of a sneak peek, similar to uh, Delver Secrets or um, uh, Search for Escanta in that way, um, where you'll see it and it may stay where it is, or you may end up revealing it to your opponent, uh, either because it's going to a graveyard or what have you. Uh, the add colorless ability from exiling a card from your graveyard. 
right? So that mana ability. Uh, and note it's a card, not target card, so it does count as a mana ability because it does not have a target. So you get to just bin cards immediately to add colorless mana. It's kind of like Delve, but you're mm -hmm. actually making mana. Um, you can't use that mana to activate abilities or pay costs from other effects. You can only use it to cast colored spells without X in its mana in, in their mana costs. Um, so you can cast spells with X in additional or alternative costs, but not in their mana cost. So a card from... I forget if this one was Eldritch... Uh, what was it called? Not Eldritch Horror. Um, Eldritch Moon? Eldritch Moon mm -hmm. or Shadows uh, over in Estrad. But uh, Avacyn's Judgment is one in a red, uh, but it has a madness cost of X in a red. And or it might be X red red. Doesn't matter. It's got an X in the mana cost, which is an alternate cost to cast the spell. If you're casting Avacyn's Judgment for its madness cost, you can use this colorless mana for that. Because it's only looking at the mana cost, not what you're actually paying, which may seem counterintuitive. Um, same thing if you're casting uh, Veriloth, Vertiloth Ancient, Vertiloth the Ancient, whatever, the with Kicker. So it's got an X in its Kicker cost. You can still spend this mana to cast that spell, even if you're casting it with an X Kicker, again, because the X in it isn't in its mana cost. But you can't cast Bonfire of the Damned for either its regular mana cost or its miracle cost, because the mana cost of Bonfire of the Damned has an X in it. And that's all I got to say this about card, that. This, this, this card's this card's nuts. Yeah, it's basically it's basically. I mean, I realize that there's some subtle differences, but it basically gives everything delve. Right. It does have to be a colored spell. So like, I can't sure, use it sure. to. I can't even use it to emerge my wretched griff. Right. I have to. Cast... I can't. I can't cast Aladdin's lamp. Yep. Got it. Yeah. You can't pay five and then five for your Aladdin's lamp. Right. <laughs> Unless there's a painter's servant in play. Umori the collector. For two, breen breen. Is this what we're doing grack, now? Grack grack Because yeah, grack is a character from Space Ghost Coast. Exactly. Coast. <laughs> or that's brack. It is but brack. Anyway, yes. I think grack is more evocative. Umori the Collector is this little legendary legendary creature ooze. That's four or five. Companion. Uh, each non land card in your starting deck shares a card type. As Umori, the Collector, enters the battlefield, choose a card type, and spells you cast of the chosen type cost one less to cast. So, uh, card types are not super types, like Basic or Snow. They're not subtypes, like Goblin or uh, 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 Equipment. They're Artifact, Sorcery, Instant, Land, etc. All the cards have to share a type. So they have to have a type in common but they don't have to match exactly. So I could have artifact creatures and enchantment creatures in my deck. I guess instant creatures if they existed. Okay. Um, so let's be real here. You're probably choosing creature. Mm. Probably. Okay. Um, lands don't, lands don't count for this because it says each non-land card. So lands don't count. And it says spells you cast of the chosen type. You're probably naming creatures. Cost one less to cast. That it reduces the generic mana. It doesn't reduce any specified color payment, like colored mana, colored mana payments, or colorless. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So that was rather predictable. Yeah. As was Sharknado, 
honestly, because, you know, as soon as it got popular, it was going to be everywhere eventually. Uh, but what's unpredictable is this next card called Unpredictable Cyclone. Uh, so this is three red red for an enchantment. And you can tell this card is good because it has tiny rules text, only I don't know. Uh, it says... And that, just, that just means it's a rare in, red enchantment, yep. is what that means, really. It says, ahem, if a cycling ability of another non-land card would cause you to draw a card... So, okay, so if you would draw a card from another non-land card, cycle ability... Right. Instead, exile cards from the top of your library until you exile a card that shares a card type with the cycled card. You may cast that card without paying its mana cost. So, cycle a creature. Instead of drawing, I exile cards from the top until I find a creature, and then I can cast that creature without paying its mana cost. Then put the exiled cards that weren't cast this way on the bottom of your library in a random order. And then itself has cycling for two generic mana. Once again, card types, not the same as super types or subtypes, so this is caring about artifact, creature, enchantment. Uh, it cares about land only insofar as it can't be a land to to have this replacement effect apply. It has to be a non-land card. Um, but uh, it does count for sorceries and instants, because it doesn't care about being a permanent. Planeswalker, if they ever print a Planeswalker with cycling, that will work here too. If the card has multiple types, you'll stop when you hit the first instance of any of its types. So for uh, Hollow One, right, which is an artifact creature with cycling, if you cycle a Hollow One, uh, this replacement effect will apply, and instead of drawing, you'll exile cards from the top of your library until you hit either an artifact card or a creature card. Right? Once you hit one of those, you'll stop, and then you will be permitted to cast that card without paying its mana cost. If you don't cast that card, uh, it's an exiled card with the rest of them, so it counts as the exiled cards that weren't cast this way, so it'll go on the bottom of your library with the rest of them in a random order. Uh, finally, if you don't hit, so if I, if I cycle a sorcery, and I reveal cards off the top of my library, or exile cards off the top of my library, there are no sorceries left in my library. I'll exile my entire library. The exile zone is face up. Uh, your opponent should have the opportunity to verify that you have no hits before you shuffle to verify that we're playing the game legally, because you should technically be able to go, you should stop when you hit a sorcery. So you shouldn't be able to just turn your library over and say, I don't got no sorceries, and then start shuffling, right? Whew. Yep. All right. Home, home stretch. Hey, you get a planeswalker. Just a few more. I do. All right. So this is Vivian Monsters Advocate. Monsters. The monsters don't need an advocate. Vivian um, disagrees. Three green for three green green. Uh, legendary planeswalker Vivian with three starting loyalty. Okay, she's got four abilities. Woo! Two of them are static now because New World Order or New 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 World Order, whatever we're up to now. Okay, ability number one. You may look at the top card of your library at any time. Let's talk about that for just a second. You don't need priority to look at the top card of your library. You just look at it. doesn't use the stack. can't be responded to. Don't be a jerk with it, though. Okay. Now, when I said you can look at it at any time, there is an exception to that. Mm -hmm. if, if, if you are changing the top card of your library because you're, say, casting a spell uh, from the top of your library... So I can't just I can't just say okay well I'm gonna cast a creature spell spoilers the second ability is you can cast creature spells from the top of your library, but let's say you're casting a creature spell from the top of your library that spell leaves the stack now there's decisions that you have to make while casting a spell 
probably not many because you're casting a creature spell. But until that spell actually is on the stack, you are prevented from looking at the the, the new top card of your library. All right. Right. You, you have to actually finish casting it. Because, yes, be, yes, people who who know the rules know, you know, it, it goes on the stack as, like, one of the first things you do, right? The very first thing you go, boop, boop, goes from the library to the stack. But you can't just put it out there and go, okay, we'll... It's... It's most most relevant when you're casting like a sorcery or an instant that has targets. So you can't like, well, it's now on the stack. I'm going to peek at my next card before deciding what my targets are going to mm-hmm. be. That's when it's most relevant. In this particular case, not so much. But we'd be remiss if we didn't mention it because we are the podcast of choice for your discerning rules nerd. Okay. The second ability says you may cast creature spells from the top of your library. In that particular case, you got the timing restrictions are going to apply as normal for casting a creature from the top of your library. You know, flash them if you got them, basically. <laughs> and if you don't, if you don't, you're casting at regular, regular old uh, speed. Uh, you still got to pay all the costs for that spell, including additional costs. You can pay alternate costs. You can mutate, you know, whatever. The top card of your library isn't in your hand. You can't cycle it. You can't discard it. Got any activated abilities? No, you can't do anything with that. Now let's uh, start talking about her. She's got a. Now we've talked a lot about this card, and we haven't even gotten into the loyalty abilities. All right. So plus one is she creates a three-three green beast creature token. Put your choice of vigilance, vigilance counter, reach counter, or trample counter on it. Okay. Again, she gets the plus one. The ability goes on the stack. The opponent doesn't actually know what the counter is going to be until until it enters the battlefield. So the three three beast token gets the counter. Then people can actually do things. The minus two ability is when you cast your next creature spell this turn, search your library for a creature card with lesser converted mana cost. Put it on the battlefield. Shuffle your library. Okay. So. So when you cast your next creature spell, that spell is going to be on the stack. This is going to trigger. So you're going to search your library before that creature resolves. It's going to care about, uh, for the first creature that you cast, that next creature spell that you cast, if it's got X, so if it's a Hydra where it's like green and X and you chose X to be 5, so its total converted mana cost is going to be 6. Okay, well you look, go through, you search your library and you look for a lesser converted mana cost with 6 or less. And you're going to put it on the battlefield. Remember, you can find another Hydra, because it's got green and X, and put it on the battlefield, because X is zero. You're probably not going to be happy, because its power and toughness is probably zero, zero. But you could still do it. You're putting that on. You can't mutate it. Now, here's one of the other things. Uh, when you cast your next creature spell this turn, you can actually mutate. That is, you are casting a mutated creature spell. It's considered a creature spell. So... You could cast your, you could cast the creature spell as a mutate, go search for another creature with lesser converted mana cost, because it'll actually look at the converted mana cost of the card, and it'll put the creature on the battlefield. Now the point is, I've said mutate a lot, but I can't mutate onto that creature I just got, because when I mutate it requires a target, so I gotta declare that target before I cast the spell and get to go search. And I think that's about everything I got to say about Vivian's Monster Advocate. Yeah, I decided to, uh, I, I thought about joining forces with you on that one uh, because there was a lot to talk about. But uh, then, I, nah, it was better to, to just have you go on your own for it, I think. Um, and sure. so our next card is Winata, Joiner of Forces. Uh, 
She's two white red for a legendary creature, human warrior, 4-4. She has a triggered ability. It says, whenever a non-human creature you control attacks, look at the top six cards of your library. You may put a human creature card from among them onto the battlefield, tapped and attacking. It gains indestructible until end of turn. Put the rest of the cards on the bottom of your library in a random order. First thing, right off the bat, this triggers per each non-human creature you declare as an attacker. Because it's not whenever one or more non-human creatures you control attack, it's whenever a non-human creature you control attacks. So you're going to resolve each of those triggers separately. So if I attack with three bear cubs, I get three triggers. I get to go searching when each of those resolves for each one. I get to search for a human creature card in my library and put it on the battle. You're going to choose what the creatures put onto the battlefield. So what these human creatures that you're getting and putting onto the battlefield tapped and attacking. You're choosing what they're attacking in terms of which player or which planeswalker when you put them on the battlefield tapped and attacking. So you make that choice at that time. Creatures put onto the battlefield attacking, this gets a little weird, uh, they were never actually declared as attackers for abilities that trigger when creatures attack. So when when something cares about uh, a creature attacking, you know, uh, saying whenever a human you control attacks, it cares about it going from a state of not attacking to a state of attacking. And the creatures that Winata is putting onto the battlefield are entering immediately in the attacking state so they never have that change so it doesn't cause those things to trigger you're not declaring them as attackers they enter attacking okay similarly uh, anything that prohibits or taxes attackers like uh archon of absolution from once again uh from an earlier set this uh this cycle makes you pay one for each attacking creature it won't attack uh, affect any of the human attackers put into play from this ability so it will not cause you to pay one mana for them because, again, that that cost is paid when you declare them as attackers. That tax applies then. It doesn't apply when something's just put on the battlefield attack. Uh, and lastly, this can actually cause human creatures that have Defender to be attacking for this turn cycle because uh, this ability is declaring what they're entering as, and Defender just says you can't declare them as an attacker right? But they can end up attacking through means such as this. I sort of wandered about on that one, but I got there ultimately. Cool. All right. So on the faraway island of Salamasand, Yadara Wandering Monster was king of the pond. <laughs> it was a nice little pond. It was clean. It was neat. The water was warm. There was plenty to eat. The turtles had everything turtles might need, and they were all happy, quite happy indeed. So that that's Yurtle the turtle, obviously, because Yadaro. What? <laughs> Am I getting a slow? You're clap? getting a slow clap. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is Yadaro, wandering monster. He's a five red red for a legendary creature, dinosaur turtle. Eight eight trample haste. Okay, good cycling one and a red. Okay, nothing so special here. Why is this uh, other than my little Yurtle the turtle uh, poetry poetry slam? Uh, why are we talking about this? Oh, it must have an insane triggered ability. All right. When you cycle Yadaro Wandering Monster, shuffle it into your library from your graveyard. If, you, if you've if you cycled a card named Yadaro Wandering Monster four or more times this game, put it on the battlefield from your graveyard instead. That's all one triggered ability. So first off, that's going to happen before you draw the card. 
Okay, all that all that stuff. So when you cycle Yadaro, shuffle it into your library from your graveyard. So it's gonna go to the, it's gonna go to the graveyard, and then you're gonna shuffle it in. And if you've cycled it four more times, but if you've cycled it four more times, you're gonna put it on the battlefield from your graveyard instead of shuffling it back in. Yeah. So that's that's gonna be uh, before you before you draw the card. This replacement of the self replacement effect checks the number of times you've cycled a card named Yadaro, Wandering Monster, not the number of times that that specific Yadaro was done. Which you know, if it's getting uh uh, if it's getting shuffled into your library, you got no way of being able to tell which Yadaro is Yadaro Prime. This trigger cares about moving it from the graveyard to a specific zone. If it leaves the graveyard between when the trigger goes on the stack and when the trigger resolves, it's going to remain in the zone that it's in. So the trigger's looking for it in the graveyard. If it's not, if it goes some, if it goes to the graveyard and then goes somewhere else, well, it's it's that somewhere else. It ain't getting pulled out. If it immediately goes to a different zone, though, so if you have something that says, like, hey, if something would go to the graveyard, exile it instead, this trigger is absolutely going to find it. Oh, wait, but it can't, it can't move it. Uh, it says it'll, it'll the graveyard. see that the cycling happened. Yeah, but it won't, it can't move it because it says you got to shuffle it from your library to your graveyard and you, you can't do it. Correct. That. And so that's the only, the only real thing that you've got to remember about Yurtle the Wandering Monster. Uh, someone that wanders uh, and doesn't really have a home could also be called a nomad. True. So, Urian Sky Nomad is one such nomad. So I feel like it and uh, Yadaro have sort of a, a kinship. Uh, Yadaro Sky Nomad is three white-blue, white-blue hybrid. Uh, that's woo if you like my nomenclature. For a legendary creature, Bird Serpent, 4-5. Uh, it is a companion. It has its companion rule is your starting deck contains at least 20 cards more than the minimum deck size. Uh, it has flying, and it has a triggered ability that says when Yorion enters the battlefield, exile any number of other non-land permanents you own and control, return those cards to the battlefield at the beginning of the next end step. Uh, this card has a rather disgusting combo, uh, that you can do in standard, but I'm not going to talk about that because this isn't about, this is a standard cast. This is a rules cast. So we're going to talk about that first ability. The okay. starting deck contains at least 20 cards more than minimum. Uh, that's the format minimum plus 20 cards. So for limited 60 or more cards have to be in your starting deck because for limited, the, the quantity is 40. Uh, 80 or more for a constructed format like Standard or Modern or Legacy, any of those, it would have to be 80 or more cards in your starting deck to qualify. This effectively can't be your companion for Commander because you're not allowed to have any more or fewer than 100 cards. So you can't do 120 because the minimum and the there's a minimum and a maximum for Commander, as it turns out. Moving on to the triggered ability, so... This triggered ability exiles any number of other non-land permanents you control. Um, the exile is on resolution. There are no targets, so you get to choose what you're going to exile. When the ability resolves and your opponent doesn't get to know what those choices are going to be until that happens. So don't get to do anything to them uh, before you exile them once you make the choices, once the trigger is resolving. You do have to both own and control the permanence in question because the triggered ability says so it says non-land permanence you own and control so if you act of treasoned one of your opponent's creatures uh you control it but you don't own it so you can't choose it as one of the cards you exile and return uh to the battlefield similarly 
if your opponent has mind-controlled away one of your creatures, you can't choose to exile that one, because you own it, but you don't control it. Okay? Any attached objects to those permanents detach from the permanents. So if you've got, some of them have uh, a pacifism on them, so you've got two bear cubs you want to exile with pacifisms on them. Uh, they don't go along for the ride, obviously, they, they hang out. Uh, and then state-based actions are going to make them go away because they're no longer attached to anything in their auras. Uh, for equipment, they just, you know, fall off and can be picked up by other things. Tokens will cease to exist in zones other than the battlefield. That's also from a state-based action. So if you exile a token, it's going to go to the exile zone, and then it's going to cease to exist. It's not going to come back uh, at the beginning of the next end step from the delayed trigger from Orion, because it's gone forever. Uh, and that's... That's it for that one, other than, again, the, the really nasty standard combo involving some more of the spark cards. So we've been doing, you've been noticing that all these cards have been done in alphabetical order, and we just did Wise, and suddenly we're doing Godzilla King of Monsters. And the reason why we're doing Godzilla King of Monsters is because the card's not really Godzilla King of Monsters. Uh, there's a promo series dealing with all the Godzilla monsters because Ikoria is... Ikoria is uh, the lair of the behemoths and all that stuff, and what's a better behemoth than all the Godzilla monsters? So there's actually a series of Godzilla-themed skins for actual actual cards in the set. And so the actual card is Zillothoria, uh, Zillorthia, Strength Incarnate. But there's a version of the card that's Godzilla King of Monsters. And underneath it, it's got the name Zalortha uh, Strength Incarnate. So really, this card is Zalortha. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, like, per the rules. But in our heart, it's Godzilla King of Monsters. So Godzilla King of Monsters is three red-green for a legendary creature dinosaur, 7-3, uh, that has Trample. And then lethal damage dealt to creatures you control is determined by their power rather than their toughness, okay? So basically, this is going to be, you know, you're going to treat power as though it was toughness in determining whether or not a creature is taking lethal damage. And it's also what lethal damage it is assigning for things like trample damage. Uh, so Ornithopter, okay. So Ornithopter, which is 0-2, doesn't immediately die, okay? The, po the power does not become the toughness. Okay, but we treat the power when we're assigning damage, we treat the power as the toughness in order to determine lethal damage. So I have to I have to deal at least one damage for it to die from lethal damage. Okay. Uh creatures dying from having a zero toughness is a separate rule, and it's not actually got zero toughness. Let's see here. Okay, so here's one of the interesting things. Uh if you control uh Godzilla during a turn, damage if you sorry, if you have Godzilla and you lose control of Godzilla, damage that wasn't lethal before. So if you have like a seven three creature, which hey, this happens to be, let's say you have another one, random other seven three, and it's got four damage marked on it, it's still going to be alive because we're using its power to determine lethal damage. Okay, seven is greater than 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 four. It's not dead yet, but you lose control of Godzilla, King of Monsters. Suddenly. Its ability is no longer on your side, and we're using its actual the creature's actual toughness to determine whether or not it's dead. I got three damage marked on a creature, three toughness, bada-bing, bada-boom, it's dead. Um, now, one other thing of note, 
some of these cards, because there's like 12 or 16 or something like that, and they all have alternate names, sometimes the rules text will refer to its second name, its actual card in the set name. So like Mothra or something like that. The card text isn't going to use the first name. It's going to use the second name. It really just means this, this permit. Mm -hmm. It's just a note. Okay. All right. That's all I got to say about Godzilla King of Monsters. Bring us home with a card we almost started with. Yeah, this is... Uh, so remember Zerda from from four hours ago? Zerda the Dawn Waker? <laughs> no, I don't. All four right. hours ago is a long we're, time We're going to talk about this card again, but not in the context of Companion per se and, and the rules surrounding it, but rather the other stuff on it. Uh, so Zerda the Dawn Walker... Well, Dawn Waker, excuse me. I keep wanting to call him Dawn Walker. Um, is one uh, wed wed uh, red white red white hybrid for legendary creature elemental fox three three uh, has companion each permanent card in your starting deck has an activated ability uh, and then it's got two more abilities uh, the first is abilities you activate that aren't mana abilities cost two generic less to activate this effect can't reduce the mana in that cost to less than one mana and then the last ability is one tap target creature can't block this turn all right so first off uh basic lands have activated abilities most lands have activated abilities in point of fact uh but uh some do not so urborg tomb of yagmoth can't legally be included in a deck with zerda as your companion because urborg tomb of yagmoth does not natively have an activated ability it gets one when it's in the battlefield but doesn't have one as a card so, a little bit of rules nerdery for all of you out there. You know I got you. Permanent cards are artifacts, creatures, enchantments, lands, planeswalkers. Uh, we've discussed that a couple of times here. When we're talking about activated abilities for that second ability, uh, it's anything with cost, colon, effect. That's, that's how you identify an activated ability. Mana abilities are special. They're a subset of activated abilities. Uh, in order to be a mana ability, which means you would disqualify it from this, it has to generate mana on resolution. It can't have a target. And as we discussed with Narset earlier, it cannot be the loyalty ability of a Planeswalker. So it does not. this does not reduce the tax from multiple Eidolons of Obstruction that your opponents might control when you're activating your Narset of the Ancient Ways plus one ability. Because those taxes still go through, and those aren't mana abilities... Oh, excuse me, this does, uh, because those aren't mana abilities, so you will get to reduce from Eidolons of Obstruction. Uh, this does reduce that, because, again, they are not mana abilities. This only reduces generic mana, which is the mana with the circle with a number or an X. Colorless mana is not generic mana, so the little uh, diamond in, in the gray circle, that does not count as generic. This won't reduce colorless, and obviously it doesn't reduce colored mana, which is also not generic. That ability specifically says this effect can't reduce the mana in that cost to less than one mana. I think, like, Training Grounds, is that what it's called, has a, has a similar rider on it? There's another card, at least one in Magic's history, that, that says something like this. Um, so, less than one mana doesn't mean less than one generic mana. It just means less than one total mana. So, take the card Blast Zone that's in Sanded right now. Uh, that second ability has, uh, it says XX tap, put X... Uh, charge counters on Blast Zone, right? If you're activating it for one with Zerda in play, that'll cost one mana, because Zerda tries to reduce it by up to two, but it can't reduce it to less than one, so it costs one. If you're doing it for X equals two, 
No, it would cost four, you reduce it by two, it costs two, etc., etc. And if you're activating a Fiend Artisan, there's another card in this set. It's got a green-black hybrid mana in it, uh, and then an X to activate its ability. X equals one, or X equals two will both only cost that one green-black hybrid mana, because that's one unit of mana. So Zerd is happy to reduce down to that, but will never reduce below that. Um, and then once you get to X equals three or more, you actually start paying a little bit more mana. Lastly on this, the uh, target creature can't block this turn ability. Uh, so if you make a blocking creature, a creature's already blocking, unable to block, uh, that doesn't remove the block. Once a creature is declared as a blocker, that block has happened, and you can't remove a creature's ability to block to then make that block retroactively not have happened. Uh, so once a creature's blocking, this ability won't change that. It will prevent that creature, though, from blocking future in the same turn. So if there's another declare blocker step, say from... Um, I, I did not actually look up the name of the Sparrow Split card. It's something Resurgence. Uh, the, the other end of it ends up giving you an extra combat. Uh, so if you do it in the first combat after a creature is blocked, the second combat, yeah. that creature will not be able to block because it's still applying throughout the turn. Still his turn. Yeah. Yep. That's it. Okay. <laughs> Ooh, that's a lot of cards. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. So the... Commander 2020 card-specific notes. Uh, Agitator Ant is a two and a red for Creature Insect 2-2. Two, two. Uh, Brian, I love you, and it's a great bit. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to stop you. I'm going to let you finish, but we are not doing that tonight. No. 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 It is. You're, you're an hour behind yeah. me. It's like I go to bed and wake up to go to work. Um, so, yeah. So that's uh, that's that's everything. Hope you, hope you enjoyed this this behemoth-sized episode. So, uh, just a, as a note to uh, judges listening to this, I know times are are challenging and, and complicated, and this is probably it's a very interesting time for for wizards to be releasing a set that is. I gotta say, like th I think this this feels like the most complicated set that they've released for standard since I've been playing standard, which goes back to like um, just before Return to Ravnica uh, time frame. And uh, for me, that excites me because as a judge, it gives me the ability to uh, really leverage my knowledge, my skill, and my ability to process these things. So players may be met, like right now we're not attending player events or uh, paper events, but Players may end up having with a lot of questions, so I would encourage you to make yourself available to those players via various uh, online messaging platforms to, to be able to field those questions. They're going to really like that. They're going to appreciate you performing that service, and it's going to help, help remind them that when, when we return to having paper tournaments, oh, right, I've got these people that I can count on who know these things uh, and who can help me figure out if this deck I want to put together is going to work. Something something that I noticed when we were going over the review notes, and we've done several sets where I've gone over these, these cards, there was, when we do release notes, there's a lot of things that appear in every episode or every every set, you know, copy effects and alternate costs and stuff like that. But there's a lot of effects that only appear intermittently and it seems like every single one of those intermittent effects appeared in this set. It's almost like they were like, huh, how can we make big creatures awesome? We're going to stick wacky stuff on them. So that's all I got to say. I'm pumped for the set. I want my Godzilla cards. I want my Mothra cards. Yeah, I'm uh, 
very excited. I'm really excited to play this on Arena, but uh, more than anything, I'm itching to play this in paper and get my hands on these cards. Because I like to play the game, and there's, like, this, this set's wild. I really think that this set, though, was built better for Arena. Yeah. Like, it, it feels like with the, with the Mutate and the, and the counters and the companion stuff, it just, it feels more geared towards Arena than any set in the past. Right, and I don't, like, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Uh, you might, people might have a concern about it. Uh, you know, this heralds the end of, of paper play, but I'm pretty confident that Wizards of the Coast has continued to say that uh, paper magic is part of their business model and it shouldn't be going away because oh, it's, it's it's important. It's a large yeah. part. So, and, and I don't think it is. I just think that we're going to start seeing more mechanics that are easy online and difficult in paper. Which uh, allows judges to provide more perce- more perceptible value, I would say. It's not that you weren't providing sure. amazing value before, but it's really obvious when you're a store <laughs> owner and these players are coming up to you saying, we have no idea how to resolve this because we don't like know how these work. And you're looking at them going, what, what mutate? I don't like, what do you mean it makes a pile of what? And like a judge could just go, yeah, it does this, 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 and this, and have all the ins and outs. And so even that, uh, like all of that's a very valuable service, and that's just like a minor portion of what judges provide, right? Anyway, we've uh, I think we've rambled on for long enough. So Brian, if you um something something, send us an email, judgecast at gmail dot com. You can find us on the Facebooks <laughs> at Facebook slash judgecast. Uh, the Twitter you can search for judgecast. The Tumblr don't bother with Tumblr. Uh, we don't have a TikTok. Uh, we don't have a Quibi. We do not have an Instagram, fortunately. Uh, nobody wants to see pictures of me doing dances. Yeah, so unless anyone's... Does anyone else have anything else to add? I'm bad at this. I'm so bad at this. Oh, you're fine. You're so, doing fine. You just no, had to, like... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to edit this heavily so it sounds like I know what I'm doing. But until then, I'm Brian Perlman, and I keep it fair. And I'm Jacob Malicic, and I keep it fun. I'm ending this at three hours and 52 minutes. Oh, Jesus. Criminy crap.